co bylo včera, není každý den. A já potká jsem dívku, byla krásná jako sen, a já ji tak rád mám. Oh, je, je, je. A já ji tak rád mám. Oh, je, je, je. A z té velké lásky stal se ze mě chuligán. Zeptám jí douška, krásně díky máš, ona na to vole, vole, proč je nelíbáš? A já ji tak rád mám. Oh, je, je, je. A já ji tak rád mám. Oh, je, je, je. Hello, welcome to Catalyst and Witness, a podcast devoted to personal explorations of the New York Film Festival, hosted by myself, Dan Malloy, along with Ryan Swin. Hello. And today we are very happy to have our first guest, Evan Morgan, co-host of the excellent podcast, Snakes and Funerals. Evan's been a huge influence just on my general thinking about film and especially on the podcast. He actually provided or taught me how to set up all this <laughs> podcast, the apparatus as it were, and I'm really excited to have him on. And I was on Snakes and Funerals last week for their podcast on spies. So this is sort of a crossover. I anticipate more crossovers to come between this podcast and Stakes and Funerals. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I don't know what I taught you about doing this podcasting stuff, because you seem to be much better <laughs> at it than I am, but uh, <laughs> or at least more committed than I am. But yes, I did figure it out at one point in time. So I'm happy to be here and excited to talk about these like hundred films that we watched or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have any spy films. That's in this true. Lineup, though, oh, uh, the Renee I mean, is kind of getting there. Yeah, yeah the Renee. Sort of, yeah. yeah. The reason why I wanted to have our first guest on for this particular edition of the New York Film Festival, the fourth one in 1966, is that this is perhaps the most significant change in the way that the New York Film Festival is structured throughout the years. This year is the first one with a proper selection committee. The previous three years had Richard Roud as the main program director and Amos Vogel in some advisory capacity as festival director. And in this year, I wasn't able to find the specific reasoning why this particular year, but the New York Film Festival added two critics, Andrew Saris and Arthur Knight, to serve as the other two members of the selection committee. And the New York Film Festival has had a selection committee for every single festival since. I think we'll get into the differences that that can cause throughout the years throughout the festival, but I think that offers for a significant break in how the New York Film Festival is structured. Or not structured, but at least the actual films that are shown in the festival. What did you two think about this year? I would say that it was hit or miss as any of the years can be and have proven to be so far, but I would say it was a bit more divided this year. There was a higher contrast. I mean, some of my favorite films that we watched for this festival so far have uh, been in this lineup, but also probably <laughs> several of uh, the, my least favorite films that we've watched for the festival so far so there's a big gulf between the quality of what's the best in this lineup and what's the worst but we'll get into the specifics of that yeah i mean i think that there are a lot of films in this particular festival that seem to represent to me like the dregs of european art cinema at the time <laughs> which we'll i'm sure yeah. get into but i do think if i remember correctly from your guys' prior episodes there's like there's maybe a greater range of kinds of films and film makers and countries even in maybe the prior festivals and this felt very euro heavy to me i think you guys had mentioned that the last festival was kind of euro heavy but this 
seemed like it was just every movie I watched was an indistinguishable yeah, really, black and it white. It really uh, doubles down yeah. on that. As far as like non-European films, I can only see one really, which is the Burmese heart, mm-hmm. but that's a retrospective selection. So yeah, it really seems like the main slate is all Europe and maybe a little America. And I still think there's some really strong films in here too. And, uh, you know, a number of directors that I really like, but I also think that there's a number of filmmakers in this festival who are sort of in, for me, periods of transition between different major periods of their work. And I don't know what was in the air in 66 that I think makes it feel that way, but I'm sure we'll get into that. But that was kind of the other macro trend that I noticed. Sure. This year is really the, perhaps the most notable development is that it's really the crest of the Czech new wave. We have no less and four Czech New Wave films it's in the festival. crashing uh, down this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do want to say that I do feel incredibly bad about how we had Black Peter in our past episode and before I could finish editing Neil's Foreman died. <laughs> he died because he was... felt in the air while shitting on his first movie. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel bad about it. Yeah, no. I, that. I can say that we're more positive on most of the line, but we'll okay. get to that in a bit. But also, I think of note, this definitely is a very divided festival year for me as well. But I think that I would put it probably comfortably between the third year and the second year. And I would actually say that I felt that not only in terms of the selection of the countries, but I think that this festival in general had a more unified outlook, like perhaps the most unified view of film since the first one, mainly in that so many of these films are bizarre in some particular Mm. way. It was a general sensibility, and I guess that manifested itself in different ways. It wasn't necessarily in a similar style or a similar approach to narrative, but there was something, I guess, in the air in 1966 that allowed so many of these films to be quite odd yeah. in their general direction in ways that I thought were both productive and non-productive, and we'll certainly get into that more. But did you either of you feel that? Yeah, some of them can be really strange, especially, I mean, even something as canonized as like Pierre Le Fou or something like that. That movie has some really odd decisions and goes on these strange detours. And I think in basically all of them, you sort of get a sense of that. The only more conventional ones, I think, were sort of retrospective titles. Well, and I I guess I sort of see that too, although I think a lot of what makes the ones that are sort of odd feel strange is that many of them on the surface are maybe a little more conventional or even begin like a man who had his hair cut short as a much more conventional thing and sort of slip into something stranger. And yet I think a number of them don't really quite commit to going like full batshit insane either. Like they sort of play in this, in this middle zone a little bit. And I don't know if it's maybe just because I've been reading a lot about May 68 recently but it does almost to me seem like maybe what's in the air is just that you have people who aren't quite yet feeling like they're able to break out entirely from the forms that they've sort of inherited in some way but are pushing against the boundaries a little bit which I think makes for films that are trying to do things differently but in many cases I think not entirely successful in that regard yeah there's there's a lot of growing yeah and not too far from I think this festival you see a lot of these filmmakers sort of explode their aesthetic interests in a larger more concrete way yeah before we get to the actual films i think first we should name some of the films that didn't play in the festival that premiered in 1966 some of the more notable ones including usman Ben's black girl roman Polanski's cul-de-sac satyajit ray's the hero and orson welles's 
Chimes at Midnight. A few of the ones that I actually was able to find out that the New York Film Festival actually was looking to get, but wasn't able to get, included Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie, which they were rejected by United Artists. I haven't actually heard anything about that film, but also Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451 and Sidney J. Fury's The Appaloosa. So those are three rumors that actually made it into the New York Times. So I think that we might actually see more of that coming down the line for more festivals to come, but I'm not 100% sure about that. And before we get into this lineup, we have a little bit of catch up on my part to get to the two major films I wasn't able to watch before we recorded last time were uh, Le Vampire, the Louis Foyade serial, and uh, Eric von Stroheim's The Wedding March. And I wasn't able to get to The Wedding March for this time, but I did watch Le Vampire, uh, which is really just a wonderful, crazy. I mean, if you want to talk about a batshit movie, <laughs> that, that's one to go for. Um, <laughs> Somehow I just became more and more invested. I probably watched it over like five days. I would do two episodes at a time or something like that. Um, And it just becomes, yeah, this fantastic way of just sort of showing silent cinema really at its height. The camera is just sort of stationed in one place and all these crazy happenings just unfold in ways that we, you know, are really unable to imagine given the technology that they had. Um, It's really just this sort of excited, boundless uh, experimentation with the form. I I loved it. Absolutely. And I Evan, would you like to give us some thoughts on it too? Fuyat is one of my favorites and very close to my heart. And I think that I have this like secret theory that genre cinema basically stopped being good at the time in which people who were making genre cinema, at least in like Europe, Europe and America, like were too old or sorry, rather too young to like really have experienced Fuyat directly. I think the way that he thinks about space and the interaction between the sort of surrealistic elements of his storytelling and the pulp elements of his storytelling informs so much of what I really love and people like Lang and Hitchcock to maybe a lesser extent and a number of other, I think, less heralded figures. And I think one of the many reasons that modern Hollywood cinema is terrible is that people who make those movies don't watch enough Fouillade. And my... Uh, people don't watch enough Yeah, Hollywood my uh, yeah. recommendation for all those people would be like a Clockwork Orange-style uh, Fouillade <laughs> marathon, and maybe we'd get some decent movies out of Hollywood that way. I mean, hopefully I after the so. first five minutes or so, it wouldn't need to be a Clockwork Orange-style thing, and they could just watch the movies. I don't know. I don't think yeah. I'm going to get Colin Trevorrow to volunteer maybe get Scott on the subject so. of our uh, filmmakers brought up from independent cinema to blockbuster cinema there is a special events program for the fourth new york film festival called the independent cinema 27 events all taking place in the auditorium at the library and museum of the performing arts and etc admission was free and included such programs as a screening of excerpts from Maisel's films an interview with Mills foreman discussions of the one minute movie basically talking about television commercials pretty wide selection of things actually of course given that it was 27 events they had to have a certain amount of variety but i think it's quite interesting in that regard i'll just say before we move on to the actual main slate that the only episode that from now on that we're guaranteed to not have a special guest is the next one and we're definitely looking for guests to come on the podcast we'd love to hear listeners let us know on twitter or elsewhere if you would be interested and we will get in touch with you yeah yeah and you don't have to you don't have to watch all the movies. <laughs> yeah. not, not completely yeah evan evan was yeah. if that's a if that's a barrier for yeah, evan is 
a trooper and he managed to watch all of them. Yeah. But not it, quite all of them. You, I made a few uh, particular omissions, which, which we'll get into. But sure, almost sure. all of them. But, but if you watch half, then that's more than enough, really. Then you're good. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely. In. So, without further ado, we will get into the main slate now. <laughs> Welcome back. The opening night film was Milos Forman's Marceau Blunt, a film from 1965, really one of the first major highlights of the Czech New Wave. We were much, much higher on it than we were for Black Peter, and oh, yeah. for reasons that I think are actually pretty patently obvious, just based on actually watching the films, but we'll get into that. The basic plot of Marceau Blunt is that it follows one character, Andula, played by Hanna Bredchova. And she is a young woman working in a factory in a sort of rural Czech town. And she spends her days working at the factory, she spends her nights on the town, I guess, as it were, at various parties, I guess. And through this, she meets a young pianist who's visiting from Prague. And she spends the night with him and she falls in love with him. For him, it was just a fling, but she falls in love. And so she goes to Prague eventually and meets his parents. And I think that Loves of Blonde is a kind of a tricky film to describe because like Black Peter to a certain extent, it delves so much into the length of interactions. There are really only maybe five, six sequences in the entire film. And it's all about the way that these interactions play out, how the various emotions, the various even narrative developments occur through the sequences. And I think that it's just much, much more skillful in this versus Black Peter. Yeah, it's much more focused in what it's trying to do, whereas Black Peter is sort of presents these various things, like his job and the party and the blacksmith apprentice or whatever that annoying guy <laughs> was doing, uh, like being at the river and all this stuff. They really just play as kind of individual scenes that don't cohere in any way, whereas with Loves of a Blonde, it's very much focused on Andala and the pianist's name is Milda, I think. It's this sort of youthful idealism and like this kind of puppy love that doesn't work out in any way. And I just think it's a funnier movie, too. Like the, oh, it is. Yeah, but like when she goes to Prague and he's there with his parents and his parents are just kind of giving him shit for <laughs> charming this young woman and now they have to deal with her and he, she sleeps in his bed and then he sleeps in bed with them and no one's comfortable <laughs> and they're all complaining. It's, it's a much more effective movie, I think, yeah. overall. 
Well, I haven't had the pleasure of uh, seeing Black Peter, I must say, so I, I don't have anything to compare to it, well, at least not to that one. But um, yeah, I mean, that final sequence when she goes to Prague is where the film, I think, really clicked for me and where the humor was actually like apparent to me. Um, the way you describe Black Peter as like a jumble of these like kind of associated scenes that don't add up to anything was sort of how I was feeling about where the movie was going up until that point. But I think it sort of retroactively confirms what Foreman is doing in those prior scenes, what he's building to. And I think, as you're saying, Ryan, like what the purpose of those of lingering in those interactions are. I think that being said, I still find some of the opening a little too dissipated. And I wasn't quite sure where to put my focus. Like we spend a lot of time with these sort of boorish men, like older men (laughs) who are uh, trying to. Uh, I don't know, sleep with the the young, probably like 19-year-old women, or I don't know exactly how old they are. And not knowing much about the film, I kind of expected to maybe go down like a Hongian almost route with these older men. (laughs) Um, And then I think, thankfully, it doesn't really. But because of that, despite, I think, it being fairly funny in those slapstick scenes when he's in bed with his parents at the end, is still a little bit kind of light and maybe empty is too strong of a word. But there's not a whole lot of substance here, but it was an an enjoyable experience. Yeah, even though I think it i enjoy it a lot it does kind of get to what my fundamental problem with czech new wave films has been so far is that they sort of take these weighty topics like how these women who work at the factory don't really have much going on in their lives other than like these town hall events where slimy guys like milda can sort of take advantage of them it deals with something that's a bit weightier than it's really treating it and i think it works here because it's just funnier but in in other czech new wave films it doesn't click so much yeah that's fair i think that what really grabbed me about love so blonde was that i think and this is a point that will develop more when we get to more czech films but i think that this film does easily the best of the three czech films that we were able to see for this festival i think that it's just able to create these different spheres these different areas of interaction you have the military there's one scene with various generals talking about how young men have the urge to procreate i guess <laughs> and then yeah. you have <laughs> yeah you have the factory you have i guess a classroom in the factory where girls are taught about sex you have the dormitories where the film actually opens with this long conversation between milda and one of her friends talking about actually two different young men that she is currently seeking and you have of course at the end you have the family and i think that the way that it manages to show that all of these different spheres are both separate but interconnected in ways that are often much more complex than initially meets the eye is i think really strong and i think just the general interactions are much stronger i think that oh, yeah. for instance the very famous nude scene that happens between andela and milda is done in a way that actually really feels quite tender and delicate and also manages to incorporate humor at one point because she doesn't want to be naked with the blinds up so he tries to pull the blinds down and to keep going back up over and over and for two minutes or so and he's completely nude while that's happening and i think that the only explicit part that you actually see of it is his rear and the rest of it is all covered up in a way that feels delicate and tender it's moments like that and even that scene of the sort of boorish older soldiers trying to get a dance with the younger woman is handled with a delicacy that works really really well for me yeah i mean i think what you were saying about the social spheres is and we'll get to this but is something that i find 
maybe lacking in, say, intimate lighting. Like, there is a sense of the social world in this film that does, as someone who has no experience, either directly or really indirectly, of what it was like to live you know, in Czechoslovakia at this particular period of time, I do get a stronger sense in this film than many of the others that I've seen of it sort of it effortlessly, I think, lays out that world for you, which I think is kind of what you're suggesting. Yeah. And I do think that's a reason right. why this one works a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think moment to moment interactions are what's key. I think that that's the more than anything, what the Czech New Wave is about. And it's all about whether the director, screenplay, the actors are able to pull that off. And yeah. I think it's pulled off rather tremendously here. So next up is a sort of double feature of The War Game, directed by Peter Watkins, and Holy Communion, directed by Peter Whitehead. Two films out of England from 1965. But first is Peter Watkins' The War Game, which is probably one of the more well-known films in this lineup. It's a television film that aired on BBC that's, you know, about 50 minutes, black and white documentary style movie depicting what precautions Britain should take. There were a nuclear attack by the Soviets, um, has some very harrowing footage of fire bombings in English towns and what those preparations would actually take in the form of. And I think this actually won an Oscar for documentaries, despite not being yes. a documentary at all. <laughs> what, right, really? This just shows how, how much they know about awarding things. <laughs> right, it won the best documentary feature at the 1966 Oscars. And uh, importantly, I, we, should, we should note that it was made for the BBC as a television film, but it was actually withdrawn before it could actually oh. be shown because it was so inflammatory in the way that it depicted, not just graphically, but I think because it's... It really sort of implicates so the British military right. mm-hmm. and government and their lack of preparedness for, you know, the sort of catastrophic thing that they're playing with. But yeah, I can see why it was pulled from TV. Right, and I really love the war game. I know that you two are less positive on it than I am, but I think that... I did well, like it, but, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, not but, so much over here, but... <laughs> Yeah. So the war game, to basically go into the actual structure and what it documents is that, as you said, it takes the form of a documentary exactly like the kind you would see on the BBC. And it initially begins with the preparations, which showing how a country would prepare for nuclear attack. And then the nuclear attack is happening while the while the preparations are underway. And the rest of the film and of course, it's very short, but the rest of the film details the after effects, the just enormous right. devastation and the societal effects that that would incur. And it's so convincing in the way that it depicts what transpires. It really is harrowing, given, you know, that it's sort of a low down production. Like, you know, it's, it's sort of one camera the whole time doing the sort of verite style. And you can't imagine that the prosthetics for any of the, you know, the people who are affected by the nuclear blast or anything like that are that extensive, you know, behind the scenes. So for the conditions of production, it really is, yeah, effective and very, very harrowing. Yeah, I mean, I find it a visceral experience, I suppose, but I, the tone of the thing really irritates me. Like Watkins has this very English wink, like finger wagging tone and there's a so it ends up being this weird case where the movie is meant to be i think like a sort of terrifying creed occur in some way for humanity but it ends up trotting out like a bunch of idiots to like serve as its argument that we shouldn't 
kill ourselves, which like, I don't know, I don't know. But by the end of it, I wasn't like that much. I wasn't that worried if humanity annihilated itself or at least these people that Watkins seems to conceive of as humanity. Like it does at times sort of feel like Adam Curtis, like putting up yes. footage of Trump and Kim Jong-un going, these men might be the cause yeah. of humanity's end. You know? Yeah. yeah. It, there's just something about that tone that really doesn't work for me yeah. and blunts, I think, the undeniable visceral quality of it because I don't really feel like a lot of empathy while watching this film. It feels scientific, which is partly, I think, the point, but the remove of the thing didn't really work for me. And I also, I think it's interesting that it gets described as a, like taking the form of a documentary and especially where the Oscars gave it an award for that. But I do think there's a weird thing that it does that is that it seems not really remarked on when people talk about that, which is that it's it's sort of like a documentary style, but it actually goes into these what if scenarios kind of, right, or like the, right. the way that the events are narrated is like this is what would happen. And I don't know, maybe you yeah, guys are too yeah. young for this, but I, really I kept thought more well, I kept getting taken out of the movie because the way that it talks about like this is what would happen if was sort of like it kept reminding me of that ad that was like this is your mind on drugs from <laughs> my childhood <laughs> yeah. and like this is your mind on like nuclear proliferation or something and i don't know there's just the tone yeah. of the whole thing it really did remind me more of a psa yes exactly a true documentary and once i sort of took it that way it, i could kind of understand it on those terms a little better yeah I, I definitely see what you mean that it kind of goes into this sort of what if and it does really like hew to these actual things that really occurred and people were like killed and damage, you know, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, Dresden, all the fire bombings in World War II, all the devastation from there. You know, you can't watch this film and not think about that stuff. And so then to sort of put it into this hypothetical is somewhat questionable, but I still think it is effective, at least for me. This is the only film that I wasn't able to rewatch. I saw it in November, and so it's a little bit more fuzzy for me. But I think that a lot of what you guys are pointing to in terms of the more finger-wagging, more questionable parts of that, like the inserts of quotes by politicians and clergy members and even the inclusion of actual footage of interviews with said people. I think those parts, especially when sometimes they're inserted into the midst of the recreations or visualizations of nuclear devastation, I think those are much more weighted towards the beginning. And as it goes further and further into the actual impacts, it becomes more and more focused on the actual images of this devastation. And I think that it becomes less and less purely academic as it goes along. And I think that yeah. a lot of it derives its power out of these images and it knows what these images signify in both a purely scientific context and also in this cultural context of the devastations that you mentioned. I think that it manages to access those on a really visceral level and that is borne out in Watkins' direction which is actually really remarkable because even though it is in its verite style it still has such a command of say the long take when the first actual nuclear bomb goes off it's a long two three minute shot just moving through this house as people are trying to prepare just before it goes off and yeah i think it's moments like that that really access it becomes more than anything almost a horror film mm -hmm. really that one was very effective because yeah you really do get a sense of kind of going through this bureaucratic thing that everyone sort of treats as just going through the motions not thinking that this event will ever occur and then you know sort of being right there when it happens and then trying to make do with 
you know, a table and, like, whatever. Obviously, just completely horrible preparations that they have just by virtue of not thinking about it at all. I would be interested, probably, I think, unfortunately, for the state of the world, it's too late for this sort of movie, but I'd be interested in a version of this movie that deals with climate disasters. I oh, yeah, yeah, I think we're too far gone for that, but um, it would it can be still get worse. to see this applied. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I'll, I'll just note before we move on that it's also quite a procedural film, not only in the detailing of these actual atomic preparations, but also in dealing with showing how the after effects go on. It shows like a stage by stage X yeah. amount of days after the explosion and then it goes further and further along with that. And I think that for me never came out across as purely academic as just a structuring mechanism. I think that it came across as much, much more for me. Definitely one of my favorites of this festival. Probably up there for me, but we'll get into what is lacking and everything else. <laughs> sure. Next up is uh, Holy Communion, which is uh, directed by Peter Whitehead, and basically details the sort of poetry reading that was at the Royal Albert Hall in London in 1965. And it's really um, a showcase for a lot of beat poets. So there's Allen Ginsberg, Michael Horowitz, Adrian Mitchell... Ernest Yandel, uh, an Austrian poet. Was Lawrence Ferlinghetti in there or not? I can't quite remember. I think, he, I feel like he is, but yes, yeah, I, I he can't might, say he might, If he's not there, they sort of in the audience and it's sort of commented upon, but it's a pure documentary. Uh, not It's not a war game style documentary. <laughs> uh, it really just shows, I mean, various readings of poems, none of which I really remember all that well. <laughs> so I mean, it is kind of, more of like a doodle than a real yeah. film and it's I, closer I, to like don't look back or you know like the da pennebaker sort of mishmash of whatever yeah although i i guess i don't really think that it if it endeavors to take a position on what we're seeing in the way that i think those films i think do somewhat like this doesn't really and or at least it's yeah. not particularly well communicated and my general inability to mine anything from beat poetry is my own uh <laughs> failing i suppose uh so yeah i didn't yeah. really find many of the performances particularly memorable although i did the one that i did like was adrian mitchell's performance of his anti-vietnam poem though right that's where you feel the room sort of get with it a bit more yeah you do feel the room in that one and it has this kind of like call and response like repeating build structure that works for both like a documentary like this and as you're saying i think to capture the room and the rest of the film doesn't i think quite have that energy but no there's one moment where ginsburg himself looks like he's about to fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> <was that>. <laughs> i know i know i've seen your time yeah. <laughs> yeah my thought throughout this documentary short was that i get beat poetry but i don't get beat poetry mm-hmm. i think it mm-hmm. definitely and whitehead doesn't really do anything to affect that in one way or another i think that it's the aims of it on the surface are pretty readily accessible but i was kind of surprised throughout the course of it just to see the vast variety of subject matter and delivery cadence meter that goes on throughout holy communion and especially when putting something as vehemently anti-vietnam as the one we were talking about versus something that's more interested in just playing with language really drove that point home for me. And like I said, Whitehead doesn't really do anything besides a very much a you're here style verite, just capturing the people all sitting on the floor of the Royal Albert Hall, using the various speakers as, I guess, stand-ins for the beat generation, which I guess that's yeah. the point, really. But 
It doesn't really, like, except in sort of moments where that anti-Vietnam poem, it doesn't really get to why all these young people are going out to Royal Albert Hall to sit on the floor and listen to poetry. Like, and don't look back or something like, you know, you have Bob Dylan's sort of magnetism, which you can sort of see why, and you have his mm-hmm. music too. So you can see why people like kind of rush out there. But with this, it's like, I sort of get it, but I really, like, I don't quite get like, poets as you know celebrities <laughs> it's not a concept that i well it, it does feel somewhat like pitched at an audience that's already yeah. interested sure, in yeah. this subject matter which is part of that i think it, although it is just kind of bizarre in 2018 to like see a stadium filled with young people to see yeah. poets like it is from a different era although the other thing i thought was a little strange about the style is like it is in this sort of verite style but I found it almost annoyingly Mm. so because the whole thing is just like a stage with people Mm. on it. And yet the camera's moving around like they're in a war zone or like they're at some like rock, you know, like a rock show. And it's like a documentary where the crowd is like bobbing around and the camera work just seems like totally slipshod and bizarrely so given it's like you have a fixed. Yeah, it does a disservice to the poetry because you're not really like paying attention. If the visuals are so all over the place and you're supposed to be really mm-hmm. listening and absorbing these words that you're hearing it creates this disconnect and there's mm-hmm. only really one significant interruption midway through one poet's a, a guy starts yelling. oh yeah right the, he's the so poet offended. is so distracted yeah. he's so offended that he feels like he can't really go on which <laughs> and also i should note that they have amazing necklace microphones something like oh yeah the, they've got each, these like big Mm-hmm. So they, yeah. they don't have to hold it. I don't know why that's not used more often, but that's they got cooler. Touch. They got those stuff that you can clip to your shirt collar, right? That's, those little yeah. beads yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Lav mics. The next film that we have is Henning Carlson's film Hunger from 1966, a film from Denmark, and this is a really odd film, at least for me. It's based on the novel Hunger by Newt Hamsun, who's a Norwegian Nobel-winning author. Details this character in Oslo in the late 19th century as he's just being driven mad basically by poverty and, you know, hunger. He's sort of a writer. We never really see what his work is, but he is sort of trying to get at least a one article or story published in these literary magazines so that he can be paid for them, so then that he can eat and, you know, kind of live this respectable life that he craves. But there are serious sort of mental hamperings towards that. I mean, he does have this infatuation with a young woman who kind of crosses paths with him and has a bit of a tryst with her. It's really just sort of an exploration into one man's mind as poverty drives him to the brink. I found it to be pretty remarkable. Maybe I was just surprised because I wasn't expecting much from it, but it really, it's a film that needs a sort of, at the very least, like a keen directorial eye, which I think it has, and a very strong performance at the center. And, uh, you know, I think this has both of those, but I know you weren't so hot on it, right? I was also really fascinated by it, but in a way that made me feel really baffled by the general it went on. It relies basically almost entirely on the performance of Per Oscarsson as the starving writer, and he actually won the Cannes Award for Best Actor. And I do think it's a really remarkable performance, but at yeah. the same time, it's one of the strangest main characters and one of the strangest lead performances that I've ever seen 
it's be sort fairly of confident in saying that it's one of the weirdest in yeah, film. Yeah, he has a sort of bag of tricks that he uses to convey these, you know, that he'll shake when he needs to convey that he's truly hungry, but it never becomes gimmicky, at least in my view. Right, I think it, at once it is a live wire performance, it is a performance that fully embodies his character, and it's also tickling. Yeah. I don't know how it manages to combine all three of those, but I guess it lies partly in the character because the character I'm fairly certain is at least somewhat mad. Yeah, feeling yeah, like and in the I, in I the novel, which I haven't read, but I, I did read up a bit on. It's all first person, and so I think the way that the film is structured and anchored by this performance uh, is you know a way to convey that and there are certain moments where we see his dreams or we see very very subjective scenes from him but i always feel like we're watching him but we're with him and we're never watching him just as a spectator you know like seeing him from the outside right it's both interior but it also puts us i felt at sort of a distance yeah. because we never feel totally privy to exactly what's going on in his mind at yeah. a particular time. And that's what made for me so many of the interactions that he has with various people utterly inexplicable. The way that he sometimes just lashes out for no particular yeah. reason at a certain person. Yeah. He, acts he has these way. very like set ideas of dignity and like the first time you really see him actually get any money in the film, money in his hand, is this moment where he stiffs like a grocery clerk or something. And that might have been the same job that he even applied for at the beginning of the film. And, you know, he pays for some he gets some food or something like that and then gives the rest of the money to this old woman who's sitting on the street and then he goes back and yells at the grocery clerk for letting himself be tricked by him yeah so there's this weird sort of sense of dignity that he wants to carry with him at all times but then at the same time he can't he's not clever enough to sort of game the system he's not a clever thief or anything like that Right, he's driven solely by yeah. impulse, and that's what really makes the viewing experience often intensely frustrating, because you see him in all these situations, and there are frequent mentions that he comes from the country, yeah. and should yeah. go back, and that that's seems a like trigger a for him. Fairly, uh, yeah, but it also seems like a fairly reasonable option, yeah. I guess. I don't presume to know how far Oslo was from where he came from, but it's, it, a lot of it just really... I wouldn't say that it didn't work for me, because I feel like it's intended to be an unnerving film but at the same time it yeah yeah it sort of veers and has these weird digressions like he has this sort of one night stand with this woman who he gives a name to we never learn her name she is you know a pretty lady uh, like a pretty rich lady too and you know she invites him up to her room and that goes in its own weird way and i i just assume whatever strange narrative digressions there are probably come from the novel and are probably more considered and written in the novel than the way they're adapted here right but i just feel that around the halfway point i was thinking of the drill candles tweet (laughs) and then it actually and it actually happens because he he actually goes to buy candles. Is it actually he candles? Money. He buy, yeah, he buys a candle yes, he actually so goes that to he buy can write by night, and then he doesn't have a light for it, so then he gets mad and he snaps the candle. <laughs> and he breaks it in half. I wasn't interested in this movie, but now that I know it's an adaptation of yeah, the real candle tweet, I'm suddenly more interested. I might go back and see this one, because I didn't watch it. But uh. <laughs> It's definitely a baffling one, and I had 
never yeah, heard same. of it before, and I haven't really heard of many more Denmark films besides Yeah, Drive and it's and worth uh, probably mentioning that this was one of the first co-productions of the various Scandinavian countries, so it was made by Dutch director and cast, but it was all filmed on location in Oslo, so it was really like the first time that there was sort of a Scandinavian film industry forming at the time. The next film that we have is First Retrospective, our old friend uh, Bernardo Bertolucci that. with his first film, <laughs> La Comare Seca, The Grim Reaper from 1962. This is a sort of a Rashomon-esque network yeah, narrative. Everyone's connected to this one. <laughs> Based on a story by Piero Paolo Pasolini, though the screenplay was by Bertolucci, uh, among others. Basically tells the story of these five different people who are in some way connected to the murder of this prostitute on a particular day and it traces the actions of these different people through the day juxtaposing their narration of what they say they did to a police detective while what they actually did is shown through the images and i thought this was all right it's about it's fine it's, would be my highest compliment towards <laughs> it <laughs> i think that I was really taken with how the structure actually manifests itself because it orients itself around this sudden rainstorm and once that rainstorm happens, it cuts from the person who's telling the story to the prostitute in her apartment. Mm -hmm. She's getting ready and you see her at different stages of that as it goes throughout the film. And it generally delves into how people lie and how people, just how their dishonesty develops in relation to their given situations. Beyond that, I think it's, mostly cursory in the way that it deals with its actual characters yeah as far as like the sort of Rashomon style goes it isn't the dichotomy between what's being said and what's being seen is just so clear that it's these huge lies it doesn't really create any sort of subjective slippages in the way that Rashomon itself we don't really know if what's being shown is what actually happened or if what's being said is a true lie or anything like that and because everyone's day is so sort of divergent we go sort of all over Rome it really they connect in as much as you know they're being questioned by the police in connection to this murder but the more interesting thing is sort of as a document of 21 year old Bernardo Bertolucci's impressions of Rome and what he thinks would make you know a compelling narrative around the city but yeah it's it's very very much a first film made by a very young person <laughs> right i do think that the general sense of dynamic filmmaking that berlichi would go on to develop in for the revolution and further films is generally there but i think he does definitely overplay his hand at certain points there are some really gruesome extreme close-ups that just don't work yeah i do like that most of the threads are just left there after their individual sections are up it doesn't really go back yeah. to develop and show the day after how people reacted to their own yeah, strands it but. really is that one day but i don't know i guess it's his magnolia or something like that <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i am not a bertolucci fan by any means and i did not uh, make time for this one for that very reason i actually told ryan that i had swore to myself that i'd never watch another bertolucci movie again <laughs> after being subjected to last tango in paris oh, yeah. uh, in a class mm -hmm. for college 
which is a truly reprehensible movie. And that was before I think I was really aware of like the rape allegation. So that's a whole, whole different we'll story. But uh, I find Bertolucci like horribly off-putting uh, and hearing that this is his Magnolia has sealed the deal <laughs> for me that yeah. I will never see. This may be like two Bertolucci movies I'm interested in. I, I'm interested in The Last Emperor really just to hear how Ryuichi Sakamoto and David Byrne work together. I don't really care about the movie, but... Just, I just want to see it in that context, but I'm not going to make a ton of time for it. The next film in the New York Film Festival was the first that we were unable to see, Leopoldo Torrey Nelson's The Eavesdropper from 1966. This is the second of two Torrey Nelson films that we've had in the festival. The first one was The Terrace and the first one. Both of these we're unable to see, which is kind of odd that Tori Nelson is completely unavailable to us at the present, but here is the ad description. Hailed by the London Sunday Times as Tori Nelson's best film in years, this is a savagely intense portrait of a young fascist terrorist obliged to hole up for a couple of weeks in a crumbling 1900s-style hotel largely inhabited by Spanish Republican refugees. A girlfriend, along for the ride, so to speak, is at first totally enthralled by his physical charm, but as his paranoia begins to take over, so comes her realization of his true nature. The film represents a fusion of Tori Nelson's two major themes, denunciation of Argentinian fascism and a scathing examination of the self-destroying claustrophobic world. I don't know why Tori Nelson is unavailable to us, but have you seen any films by him, Evan? No, no, I have not. And the only reason I even know this name is because it's come up on your show. Yeah, I did find this film on YouTube, but there was no way to get any subtitles on it. So it unfortunately wasn't really accessible to us in any way. Yeah, so this is one other non-European film in the lineup. So next up is Alhazard Balthazar, Robert Bresson's famous film about the titular donkey and its trials and tribulations through various owners on the French countryside. I saw it back in October when it was playing at Film Forum when I was in New York. I saw this when I was like 17 and was super bored by it, but seeing it again (laughs) after seeing a lot more Brisson and really being with it, it really solidifies it as one of my favorites, but sort of in a second tier of Brisson for me. It's kind of right between the sort of periods of his career that I really gravitate to, which is his later stuff, and the stuff that I respect and admire sort of earlier black and white stuff but I don't quite connect to in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I have a similar experience in that those later films are the ones that really do it for me with Brisson. And when I said at the beginning that this festival includes a lot of filmmakers who seem to be in a period of transition, um, Brisson is the one that really comes to mind for me. And I think he's not yet in that next phase of his career, which I think is really inaugurated in 69 when he switches to color and makes Une Femme Deuce. Um, But he's still sort of beyond where I think he was with, say, Pickpocket and A Man Escaped. And so I think it makes for a weirdly kind of uneasy film. I haven't seen it in a while myself, but my sense is that Brisson has almost at this point like lost whatever conviction he had in his ideas of grace that you see in A Man Escaped in Pickpocket. And yet I don't think he was like quite ready to recognize that in himself. And I think at core, like he is a pessimist, but it took him until he started making color films to like really Really, see the world for how he actually sees it. So this one's always like, it has its bleak elements, 
but it's always felt to me, it's still attached to this idea of beauty and grace that I think for some pretty quickly will jettison. And it because of that, it feels kind of false. Like he already knows he doesn't believe yeah. in it anymore. And so the gestures in the movie are just, it's still a very good movie, but it just, there's some element of his moral conviction that is little bit muddled in this one where I think in the earlier films he's committed to a slightly different version of it and in the later films he's really committed to how bleak those are yeah I did revisit it it was the first Brisson I saw way too early and I have seen two Brissons in the meantime and so it's still I think in some ways baffling I guess maybe for the reasons that you guys described but I was just really emotionally kind of devastated by it because it accesses these emotions on such a simple, on a seemingly simple level, and how it details how Balthazar is passed through six or seven different owners, and each of them represents sort of a different facet of humanity, and in that, it goes into a sort of elemental state in the way it deals with each individual encounter, and the same goes for Mary, played by Anne Wiesemski, in her first performance, incredible performance, and yeah. how her interactions mirror the donkey. It's That's, of course in the premise and that's patently obvious through watching the film but the simplicity of it just really struck me over and over again through, yeah. through the film it's really like where Brisson starts paring down his style even further like if someone watched A Man Escaped or Pickpocket you would think that's not even possible but it, right. it certainly is <laughs> yeah they're opulent yeah, comparatively yeah. Uh, and I think that yeah this is sort of you can pick up on that sort of commitment to grace and beauty and but then also at the same time like these very tough and sort of horrible circumstances are being shown and they're not those aren't being praised or anything like that like he's not presenting an optimistic view through those yeah i would i would say yeah like between this and mouchette really see him sort of transition into this very strange later phase of his career which i think we do get to in later lineups Brisson is one of those directors where every single one of his films that premiered during the festival's time is actually in the festival, which is neat. Yeah. So we will get to see his full development. Yeah, it, yeah the Brissonian style really comes to the fore here just in how focused it is on hands, objects, feet. And in a way that it puts it in a context, because I think that to compare it with Brisson's previous film, Trial of Joan of Arc from the first festival, that in a sense feels cloistered off because it is set in this confined space, largely in this courtroom or this prison cell. And in comparison, there's always the sense of a natural world intruding upon the circumstances that these characters are in. And that's literalized in the form of Balthazar. And he's set very deliberately as an animal. He's almost never anthropomorphized. And he's set merely as a donkey. And the way that it cuts repeatedly back to the donkey and you can't read his expression he might not even have an expression but mm -hmm. you tried to because that's the way that we're trained as viewers to see film is to read an expression into any face that we see and it's often just really really heartbreaking i would say i think he betrays that with the final Maybe. sequence of the movie and that's exactly where i think i locate my most pointed critique at the film is that final scene because i think the way that balso sort of lays down yeah. in that field and the sense of just like exhaustion there's a Someone I do think there's a kind of Twitter put that in, image in that from the scene, movie but. with that send off to Stephen Hawking that you had a good go at it. Thanks for your <laughs> and so I haven't been able to like look at that picture without that. I just know it's going to ruin the film for me now. <laughs> I do want to point to the circus scene where 
Balthazar is paired against these various exotic animals. There's an elephant, tiger, a monkey, and Brisson's cutting between these two impassive sort of expressions and showing how Balthazar isn't very easily cowed by it. I think that's really where the film achieves its deepest wells of emotion for me. How it implicitly references the cruelty that he's experienced and that Marie's experienced throughout the film. It keeps a certain... Balthazar, is, it's a it's a hard film for me to describe. I've even seen it and even being emotionally affected by it on this watch, I still can't really put into words why it's so effective for me. It's a film that I think just accesses emotions on the most primal level and in that there's enormous artistic credit to be given there. But besides that, I can't really, I can't really say why I love it. Fair enough for Brisson, I think. It's a beautiful film, but I feel maybe if I, after I see more Brisson's, especially for this podcast, then I'll be able to revisit and go into more detail why I think it works for me. Okay, and we're back, and now I get the honor of introducing the next film here, which is Agnes Varda's The Creature, which is a very unusual film for Varda, a film that was more or less forgotten after its sort of initial stormy reception. It's a film that is a sort of science fiction story, but science fiction in the way that like Adolfo Bioy Caceres is science fiction. It feels like it's in some ways, an adaptation of the invention of Morel in some sense. It follows Michel Picoli and uh, Catherine Deneuve, who are a married couple. He's a writer. As they go out to this seaside town, uh, as he's working on a novel, and they're living in this community, but a number of strange things happen after an accident on their way there. Deneuve loses the ability to speak, and the town's inhabitants sort of behave strangely when tinted colors come on screen, which is eventually oh, yeah. uh, explained, but is one of the more unique stylistic features of this film. It's a movie that I think is a failure, but a bizarre and fascinating one, and one that it surprised me the extent to which this informed my reading of Le Bonheur, which Barda made right before this film. Both films are about marriage. In this case, the marriage is under threat from the outside, whereas in some sense the marriage in Le Bonheur is threatened from within. But there's a, a sort of latent science fiction quality to Le Bonheur that I think I didn't quite pick up on until I saw Varda tackle something more directly science fiction in this film, which eventually reveals a sort of mastermind with a sort of computer like device, yeah, like a three D chess uh, that like controls the townspeople and is involved in a wager with Pico Lee eventually to see if he can prove that the townspeople are willing to be good people or not or, or something like that. It's all a little unclear to me, but 
the way in which Le Bonheur is a movie about a man who understands women to be automatons that are replaceable, just like uh, like a cyborg where you could swap out the model is something that I hadn't... is very clear in that film, but I think the way that there's the sort of science fiction edge of that premise suddenly seemed clearer to me here. And so I think the movie is an extension of things Varda is interested in. I just think she doesn't quite have a handle on the specific material at play here. Yeah, I think this is the film. She has this sort of exhibition in Paris or something where there's a sort of garden house thing made of a print of one of her failed films. And I think that it's actually this film that she uses the film from. I I don't remember if it's a print or the camera negatives or something like that, but it's called Her House of Failure. (laughs) She has a bit of sense of humor about this one. You can actually see it in The Beaches of Agnes from 2008. Like, yeah. you know, my shack of failure, which yeah. I think sums up a lot of what Le Creatures is. It, it's it is, kind of about that, yeah. Right. It is a very ambitious failure, I think. And I haven't seen actually any of Varda's earlier work, to, which is really bad of me. But So I can't really speak to how the science fiction aspect interfaces with the rest of her filmography. But I do think it is sort of in the abnormal sci-fi film genre, subgenre that Alpha Phil is in. Part of what doesn't make it work for me is that the people, aside from Piccoli, and instantly Piccoli's character is named Edgar Piccoli, (laughs) (laughs) which is... But I think that the rest of the characters besides him aren't really given any sort of insight or really a much beyond their surface traits. I think that's a significant problem. I think that the more crazy aspects of the second half would have been more anchored if the characters have been given more definition. Yeah, it does become this kind of whimsical tale of weird people running around. It doesn't have all that much meaning. Like, there are the two men who are always trying to get into his house, but you never exactly know what. And I guess the answer really is that the malevolent man with his 3D chess machine (laughs) is, like, you know, (laughs) informing people because he'll, like, there's the sort of matron of the hotel in town, and she has an affair with the good-natured doctor and then the man with the 3D... I, I, I don't know his name, but... He he turns on, you know, the bad side and <laughs> he becomes very flirty and then the doctor says, you're acting like a whore and all this stuff. Yeah, I was interested in this in relation to Alphaville. I don't think Varda really made this as a response because the production time probably didn't match up, but it does create this sort of less despairing vision of sci-fi and sort of computer intervention on reality, whereas Godard is sort of seeing this as a dystopia and ending all sort of manners of free will. Here it's a lot more controlled. The bad man behind the chessboard can only really do so much. He can't change people's lives permanently. He can't take away their freedom or anything like that. It's only sort of momentarily and it causes these rifts in their lives, but it's not anything that's like earth shattering. And Varda sees it more as a game than something that's already been decided. Whereas, yeah. And the other like game aspect that we haven't really talked about, and I think is another reason why it doesn't entirely work, because it's not clear how this is really integrated into the film. And neither is, I think, meaningfully ambiguous, which is that Pico Lee is... He's either, like, writing this story as it's happening or the story is, like, influencing his novel. But whatever sort of Ouroboros structure is supposed to be at play here where the sci-fi events are feeding from his mind or are influencing 
interesting. His art isn't really developed in a way that makes a whole lot of sense. And so like that's like a big crux of the movie's ideas, it seems to me, that I think it's meaningful that we didn't talk about them until we got fairly far into talking about this <laughs> yeah. because they don't make sense. But right. yeah, it doesn't really work. Yeah. Even the game that takes up the last third or so between Piccoli and this mastermind, where Piccoli is given a dice roll and cards, selecting a character, which is an actual person, to interact with different people. And then the mastermind has this claw they can use to enact the minute of, of whatever <laughs> evil. outsized emotions. Yeah. <laughs> minute of evil. Yeah. yeah, it's like a minute of evil or a minute of good. And yeah. I do right. like the way that we get these color tints that kind of remind... I think Varda was sort of working. She wanted to do maybe something with like that sort of silent film style of right. different right. color tints, have different meanings for each scene. But I wish that that was a bit more mm-hmm. fully developed. Yeah, I, I do like that idea of it. Way. And I would, we would be remiss we if uh, yes. we moved on from the film without talking about the scene in which Michelle Piccoli beats up three guys with a dead cat, which made the entire experience worth it for me. That's def- this is definitely her most anti-cat movie, I think. She's- I think she decided to be nicer to cats and the ways, like, I've never thought of Michelle Piccoli as an actor who can make his eyes bug out like that. Yeah. He really makes the most of it in his only minute of hate. I encourage you to find the image on Ryan's timeline that he tweeted out of that, because it is, it is wonderful. I just think that it's sort of, in some ways, it's both impenetrable and that a lot of it just seems sort of random and sort of slapdash, and a lot of it also feels overdetermined because even before any of this science fiction aspect intrudes on it, it's just so filled with jarring edits, very yeah. random cuts to half a second insert shots, and this really screeching soundtrack mm. that does not yeah. work for me. It's really interesting to read this as a proto-video game movie. Yeah, that's true. It also is a movie that looks great. Like, it's stylistically kind of oppressive in its way, but Varda is operating, like, at her sort of full image-making power here. So that's something else. Makes the film worth seeing, despite its uh, inconsistencies. And Sean Scope, too. Done Mm -hmm. very well, I think. The next film that we have is... Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Hawks. Uccellace Uccellini. <laughs> yes, this film has sung credits. It's scored by Ennio Morricone, but they're sung through in a really exuberant <laughs> manner. That yeah, I think sort it's of very Pier Paolo Pasolini. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like sort of these incantations of yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who you're gonna see? You expect to like be applauding for each of them after their name is sung. This is another weird film. I think that may- maybe it's actually it's probably worth just uh, giving like a summary of it, which <laughs> is that a sort of lower class man and son sort of go on this Aesop's Fables walk through the Italian countryside, accompanied by a crow. I mm-hmm. think yes. a talking crow that hops along with them. And then they go into these different time periods to enact these different stories. But then they do come back to contemporary 1966 Italy. And then it ends with the funeral of a leading communist or something like that. <laughs> and, that and then it's over. And they eat the bird because it got so yes. annoying. I, the very the movie for me bird. never tops the opening. I actually love the opening. So well, it should be clear because I'm like singing them on your show. But like, actually, I love the opening credit. <laughs> and thought those were 
just like super inventive and it really primed me to be on this movie's wavelength. But then I just feel like Pasolini's taste and sense for comedy just kind of falls off a cliff after the opening. Uh, The movie stars an Italian comic, Toto, and I think he's paying homage to that kind of Italian comedy in, in some sense. I'm not familiar with Toto's other movies, really. But yeah, I just, I find that the movie, despite Pasolini's often really remarkable compositions and framing, never is that funny, which is, seems like yeah. an essential problem for a film that is meant to be this picaresque thing. The kind of comedy it reminded me of most, I don't know if you guys are all that familiar with it, but I watched a lot of Rocky and Bullwinkle growing mm. up, and so the sort of fractured fairy tales that you get in there, or where like you go back to King Arthur's court, and it's just Rocky and Bullwinkle humor, <laughs> basically, in that setting. That's basically what it reminded me of, because we'll have like this one thing that we're going along, which is, you know, would be like Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know, foiling Boris and Natasha's plans, and then suddenly we're transported to a different time period where the same people and the same style of acting and everything like that is just being put on different clothes and we get this sort of fable but it's deconstructed in a certain way that's really what i was reminded of most uh and i yeah i don't think it totally works either yeah i don't think it totally works but i do think i liked it and i'll note that it's divided a third of it takes place in the 13th century and two-thirds of it takes place in modern that's my rough estimation mm-hmm. and i do really actually really quite admire the 13th century aspect that's actually where the film gets its title because toto and his son are cast as priests sent by saint francis to minister to the hawks and the sparrows and so they spend years trying to figure out how to communicate with birds the and then eventually are... when they do you get subtitles for these calls yes <laughs> i'm more squawks <laughs> no the, the hawks are they communicate through squats, but the right. squirrels communicate through dancing. Yeah, that's and you, right. And you see Toto and his son hopping around. And I think that that really gets at, that was both funniest for me, and also I think accesses some of the more interesting things about how religion functions in society. And I think the film otherwise goes more into a political bent, and I think that it's not really communicated as effectively. Yeah, it just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb almost. I mean, I guess there are certain ideas that it gets to, but it really just kind of goes into this archival footage of like the former leader of the Italian Communist Party, his funeral parade, when Toto and his son don't really figure into that at all. And I think that's after they eat the bird. Yeah, it's near the very end, yeah. No, it's, it's before. Oh, it is. Yeah, they eat the bird in the last few moments. Oh, so maybe the bird represents Pasolini, and he got too obnoxious. <laughs> End the movie. I mean, the bird is described in the inner titles as a left wing in the right. And I do really like the bird. He, yeah, oh, the bird. Yeah. I think the bird's the best character. but Absolutely. And I don't know how they managed to get a bird to hop along that well for so much. A lot of bread, but... I imagine. Yeah, the way that that's all cut together yeah, to like make the bird trail. seem like it's moving and talking to them is like does work pretty well. But I don't yeah. know. I, I'm going to make a broad statement here. 
but what are podcasts for if not just making rash generalizations? But uh, I really just like, I just don't think that mid-century modernist Italians should have ever been allowed to make comedies. They're never, like, they're insufferable in Fellini, like, Rossellini, like, can't do it. Like, even someone like Calvino, like, who can be very droll and clever when he, like, in a few of his books that are more, like, outrightly comedic, just, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I can't claim to have much similarity with mid-century Italian comedy. The next Pasolini film we have is decidedly less funny, although it does have maybe a couple bright moments. It's Akatone, his first feature, I can't quite remember. Yes, Um, first feature. A retrospective title from 1961, Akatone meaning beggar, or slang for street scum, basically which is this sort of neorealist narrative of a young man who's nicknamed Akatone, attempting to be a pimp and to sort of keep his control over these prostitutes and then meets a woman in a factory or a laundry house or something like that, falls in love with her and then brings her into his web of friends, these sort of young men who don't have the opportunity to get jobs in this Italian economic system. And so he eventually brings her into prostitution, which she's vehemently opposed to. And they have a sort of love interest together. And if I'm not mistaken, it ends with his death. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he dies, which is sort of telegraphed from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I I think I was probably just as on the wavelength of this as I was with the Hawks and the Sparrows, which I think speaks to sort of how Pasolini is working in this period and how that works for me. I do admire how this sort of pushes neorealist style into a much darker territory than De Sica would ever really acknowledge, but I don't think just by virtue of that it's necessarily a totally interesting film in itself, but I don't know what you thought. I know, Evan, you were able to watch this. No, I did not see this one in time. I would agree that my appreciation for Akatone and Hawks and Sparrows is about equal, but I think that they have totally different characteristics that draw me to each individual one. Hawks and Sparrows is quite gentle for most of its time, which works well for that one. And Akatoni is just so direct. It's a really yeah. direct film in subject matter and in actual filmmaking terms. Like the delivery of lines, the camera angles, the cutting yeah. is all very direct. It's not in your face. That's not really an accurate description, but it has a certain not kinetic effect, but a certain jarring effect that I think works well for for the film. It keeps it at a nice sort of propulsive state that worked well for me. Yeah, you sort of get the sense that this is how he's going to end up from the beginning, but I don't think it's necessarily something that you can really see every step being laid out. My main problem with it is that it presents these ideas and then sort of circles around them rather than fully developing them in a way that might be more interesting. Like, there will be times where Akatone is really just on his own or he's sort of going through all these different venues that he has in his life. Being a pimp, seeing his son whose mother is being married to another man and trying to cut Akatone out of his son's life the woman that he falls in love with and his friends they all will take over the narrative at certain points but they never really cohere and you do like I would forget about them at certain points until they came back and if they didn't come back at all then it really just slipped my mind but you know I do think those parts can be interesting in themselves and they do have their moments but they just never really cohere in a way that I found interesting 
That's fair. I do agree that it sort of ambles along at a pace that trying to deal with so many different aspects of one young man's life, and it does make full use of its two-hour runtime. Uh, yeah. I can't say really whether that's a testament to the film or a weakness of the film. I think it's just intrinsic to the film. The character is introduced with this very swaggering quality, and I think that carries through a lot of the film, and that's what gives the film some of its charge because you have this character that's so vigorously defined, so yeah, so he defined goes, so like quickly. he goes to these places, like he brings you there. It's not these forces are coming down on him or anything like that. When we see him go to work at an auto yard or something like that, it's because it was his choice and he wanted to make legitimate money so that the woman he's in love with, whose name is Stella, would see him as a legitimate guy and that he wouldn't have to make her a prostitute, but then eventually he does. And I feel like when that happened, I was just like, well, of course she ends up this way. Right. And I think maybe my biggest complaint is that for someone who's so central to the story and to Akatone's life, Stella has like two lines of background that she gives and sort of repeats, which is that her mother was a prostitute and she doesn't want to be that way. And then that's mostly what we get of her as a character and, you know, maybe her feelings about Akatone too. It's a mixed bag for me. I'm certainly interested in seeing how Pasolini later on get rid of these tendencies and maybe find something more his own lane. That's true. I think... Maybe I was just mostly drawn to how it captures the street, how deeply embedded it is into this milieu. And I think that personally yeah. mines a great deal of detail and specificity out of that. Yeah. The next film, we have another unavailable one, is I think a totally unique occurrence in the New York Film Festival. This is a children's matinee for the film Do You Keep a Lion at Home, directed by Pavel Hobel from Czechoslovakia. This is a 81-minute film. The prices were correspondingly 50 cents less. I was really curious to see this, but I don't think it's available. But here's the ad description. This magical children's film reveals all the originality of the new Czech cinema and will delight adults and children with its flavor of the children's universe. Mingling fantasy and reality, it recounts the frequently surreal adventures of two boys in a big city, with children directing traffic, mysterious paintbrush that colors reality, midget car races, Czech rock and roll ballads, singing dogs in color. The subtitled, this predominantly visual film has very little dialogue, ages 5 to 12. Yeah. If we had been able Check to see new wave it, for the kids. Yeah, we could have commented on the uh, talking animals thread going on. But, Theme. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Lake Creators has a couple of scenes where they could at least talk about Oh, animals. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And this was Pavel Hobel's directorial debut. was really curious to see it, but we were unable to, which is unfortunate. So next we have a program of Cinema Verite shorts under the banner, The Scene. First is a Maisel Brother documentary, Meet Marlon Brando. Then there's a film by Gianni Amico, Notes for a Film on Jazz. And it closes with a short feature-length film called The Troublemakers by Norman Fruchter and Robert McIver. And we'll take these film by film. But I think that just as a general introduction to this program, I think it's a really interesting choice to pair these stylistically similar, but subject matter was very different shorts together. Yeah, it's the interface in interesting ways. I, I think I watched the two that were available. Notes for a film on jazz wasn't, but Me and Brando and Troublemakers were. I watched them in the same afternoon. I think I took a kind of sizable break between them, but I tried to think about them in relation to each other. And as far as like a programming choice outside of practical factors, like 
like runtime and the genre that they're or movement that they're fitting in it makes sense but as a thematic choice they don't really speak to each other i think in significant ways so first we have meet marlon brando and this took place during a day-long interview deluge on brando at the hampshire hotel in new york in an effort to get publicity for his 1965 film, Morituri, where he co-starred with Yul Brynner. I really like this. So much of it is because of Brando, because he's such an engaging presence and continually surprising presence in the way that he interacts with all these different interviewers and with the camera especially. I think he has a magnetism that really, really drew Yeah, him. Yeah, it's like watching... I'm trying. I mean, it's kind of like watching Kanye interviews or something. Uh, yeah, I, I spent a little bit of time watching Kanye's most recent interview, which I don't really recommend. But um, uh, you know, like it for whatever lacks in formal invention or you know stylistically, the enigma of Brando, the charisma that he brings, and the sort of charm, the way he's able to pull interviewers in is really fascinating, and also just the kind of meat grinder of press junkets just seeing him answer the same stupid questions over and over and try to keep himself entertained without going crazy and i do think it's really kind of funny uh, fascinating that this is a for a brando film that no one cares about that has no reputation you know even his performance in it isn't like really mentioned at all and so the fact that he had to do this for every single film he made presumably kind of points to how he became much more eccentric later in his life. I can't imagine really seeing this at the time and thinking all too much of it, but in retrospect and sort of knowing where Brando went in his life, it becomes a lot more interesting. Right. I saw even more on rewatch. I was struck by just how much range he has, mm-hmm. even in scenario where he's quote unquote not acting. Of course, he's acting right. in the way that he's, you always get the feeling that he's earnest to a certain extent, even though he's being playful or sort of a prankster in the way he even to like a sort of um like degree like when he's talking to that young woman who used to be miss america and he's like oh you're 22 very impressive for such a young lady and it's just like kind of creepy but yeah i definitely see the earnest you know it's earnestly creepy Right, and on that point, it's as much a study of these interviewers about these various mm-hmm. interviewers and how the balance of Brando. There's one particular interviewer who's actually really on the ball in the way he interacts. He quickly makes a joke about how I think his dog chews his fingernails or something like that. Yeah, and, Bra- yeah, and Brando right. immediately lights up. You can just see how yeah. how happy he is that. When someone's finally like right. engaging in what he's more interested in, which is sort of the immediate stuff. Right, and credit must be given to the Maisels for deciding to hold on his face for so long. Most of it is occupied by his face and the way that that shifts throughout both the questions and his often long-limited answers. And he speaks French and German in this. Yeah. Which is Yeah, and this that sort of weird interlude where he goes outside and then he speaks to this young black woman who walks by yeah it's sort of a strange it's breaking the monotony of a film about him trying to break the monotony he's being interviewed for french radio or something like that yeah it's an interest i might even be underrating it but it's, it's definitely an interesting little slice right i think you saw it right no actually i didn't get a chance oh, okay. to see this one i was gonna watch this afternoon and don't have film struck so okay. i didn't have immediate access to it okay 
The next film in this program was Gianni Amico's Notes for a Film on Jazz from 1965. It was shot by him at the Bologna Jazz Festival with some of America's best musicians of the new jazz getting together to entertain not only an audience but themselves. That's a quote from the advertisement. I think it was actually a pretty incredible assemblage of musicians, including the recently deceased Cecil Taylor. Oh, cool. The third and final film in this program was Norman Fruchter and Robert Macover's film Troublemakers from 1966, 54 minutes long, so actually longer than the war game, incidentally. Yeah. I think we all really liked this one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this was definitely like a, something I was completely off my radar, and I really, really responded to. Same, yeah. I mean, it basically follows a community organizing group in Newark, largely a group, though not exclusively, of young white organizers who are working on behalf of and in tandem with a largely black community that lives in the city of Newark. And it's divided into a number of chapters, which each get a heading. And there's a narration and sort of the structuring device of the film is to show how they encounter a number of specific demands and needs of the community and work as an organization to try to address those concerns and those demands in the community. And I found the way that it traces those conversations that they have and the actions that they take and the way that they engage with the politicians in the community and a number of the other institutions to be this kind of proto-Wiseman-like vision of what it takes to actually enact change in a bunch of interlocking and slowly moving like bureaucratic systems yeah and i was surprised that something because wiseman i think didn't make his first film until a year later right uh, i was surprised to see something that was so attuned i think to his kind of interest before he uh, made his first film yeah i was really struck just by one of the chapters just concerns they want to put in a street light for this one busy intersection that a lot of families cross and a lot of kids are going by and it ultimately never happens just because there's so much bureaucratic red tape that they have to encounter and that this group which is sort of full of young idealistic white people working with perhaps more pragmatic but i think still ultimately idealistic black people in the community really thinking that they can enact change by doing all these campaigns and petitions and just going out there and direct action like taking over the street confronting the police when they start to make problems about it and nothing happens in that at all i really think it's a fascinating film that lays out the problems of organizing community organizing and really affecting change in very concrete ways it reminded me a bit of the murder of fred hampton which i think i had seen a couple of weeks before watching this sort of in those earlier scenes where fred hampton and the black panther party in chicago are really just focusing on the work that they're doing there the black power mixtape too which also has that footage right And I think that the key to this is that it jumps repeatedly back and forth between these meetings of trying to formulate a plan and then going out into the streets to actually enact that. And the voiceover is really key in this respect because it guides the viewer in a way that doesn't feel like it's overstating a case. It's presenting information in a way that's accessible. It gives exactly the information that you need and nothing more. And you can formulate your own views of what's happening. And I think that what really draws these three films together is that they're three films about improvisation. You see 
Brando improvising in his form of acting. You see actual improvisation in jazz, and you see how the actions and how the plans must shift on a moment-to-moment basis if they can actually affect any change. And even so, there's no significant change that happens in any of these three different parts of dealing with the housing problems of a landlord with the traffic light, and then the attempt to elect this united freedom ticket which gets basically no votes despite heavy campaigning yeah especially the housing portion of it is also really fascinating i just think the just you know on a sort of historical basis the footage that's presented here is really invaluable and you know it's definitely a good thing that we were able to watch it on archive.org which yeah. is it, it is pretty street in there so if you yeah have an interest from this discussion in terms of the housing thing too i was watching the film i went on and figured out she was talking about i think paying like 120 dollars or something in rent for the house, which today equates to like a thousand dollars in yeah. rent, yeah. and she's making like a dollar fifty. I think someone talks about getting a job; it's like a dollar fifty an hour. So you'd be paying like sixty percent of your income yeah. on That's rent so in that building, and just like that kind of detail is fascinating, and I think just shows the extent to which those kinds of systems of oppression in certain communities just are so hard to overcome. And yeah. That's yeah. They're so about. deeply ingrained that everyone has accepted it as common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like this is how you landlords think this is how it, we price housing in these black communities and the people there aren't empowered to do anything about it. Yeah. Definitely quite a strong program in general and troublemakers yeah. really fascinating how it details these issues. The next film, another retrospective is Colin Ichikawa's The Burmese Harp from 1956. It's a historical film set during the end and immediate aftermath of World War II. Focuses on this squadron who are led by a former music teacher, their captain, Inoue. And the main character is Private Mizushima, who has a natural gift for the type of harp found in Burma. In the first 20 minutes or so, they find out that the war is over and Japan has surrendered. Before they are sent off to a prison camp, the British military asks one of their group to go and convince this other squadron of Japanese soldiers who refuse to believe that the fight is over to surrender. And Mizushima is told to go and he fails in this task and everyone else is massacred except for him. As a result, he assumes the identity of a Buddhist monk and the film moves between these two as the squadron tries to figure out if Mizushima lived or died and Mizushima's own quest to find a way to serve his country in a different way by burying the bodies of all these Japanese soldiers that litter the countryside of Burma. It really snuck up on me, and I was almost a puddle by the end, because <laughs> it's it's a really emotional film, surprisingly, and especially considering the two Ichikawas that were in the second York Film Festival, it operates in a really different vein, partly because it's shot in Academy, and those two are in the scope. You weren't terribly fond of it, Dan? No, I can't say I was, and that's mostly, I think, just, you know, between me and Ichikawa. <laughs> um, I, I really just find his way of storytelling between the three movies that we've watched, which are the only three I've seen by him, just to be somewhat overdetermined. Creating this sort of dual narrative, at least in the case of the Burmese Harp, one of which I found much less compelling than the other. I don't really think we needed as much of the soldiers as we saw. I found Mizushima's own quest to be interesting enough that I would have just preferred to have seen that sort of play itself out. I can't really say I have too much I dislike about the film, just not enough that really got to me in any significant way. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it. My memory of it is pretty fuzzy, but I do remember being pretty moved by it, as Ryan was. And I think I sort of get 
why you might not be responding to Ichikawa because even in just beyond the storytelling, like even his visual style is yeah. kind of overdetermined. Mm-hmm. And the movie is, yeah. is very beautiful, but he has all the symptoms of mature onsen. You know, like everything is just a touch too pretty uh, and a touch ossified. But it's a film that despite that and despite, I think, when I watched it, being constantly aware of the fact that it is a little too ornate in its way, still eventually when you get to that final uh, sequence of him with the harp, I do find that quite moving. Right. Yeah, it did get to me a little bit. but (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think a lot of it is about the music and how deeply ingrained yeah. it is in all of these cultures. The way that they find out that the war is over and in doing so probably saves a lot of lives is their singing when they find out that a British squadron is closing in on them. And so they continue singing while they're preparing for battle. And eventually the British squadron joins in with that. And how those two move in such a fluid way in combination with Mizushima's heart playing is really quite moving and i will say that for the visual style of ichikawa i think that his frames this is based because the three other ichikawas i've seen are all in scope so i can't really speak to if his other academy films are like that but i think that the frames are a lot more cluttered than the two that we've seen and i think yeah. that maybe on an unconscious level he was waiting for scope or his, yeah. his visual style this- becomes this more might have been spare. more interesting, if, at least visually, if you know the space had been wider and he could have put all these different elements that you get in each scene into these larger frames. There is one interesting scene where it's the captain or someone in the unit in one of the later scenes. He's in that sort of bunker of various people. I can't quite remember what's in there, but that's something that would have been more interesting in a sort of scope setting. Maybe. I think that his style from what I've seen became more spare in scope. Maybe because he had a wider frame to yeah. place things in. Maybe, But right. I think that in general, Burmese Harp, even though it is very sentimental, I think that it manages to keep a soberness because it's dealing with so much debt and with the nature of armies, nature of duty and friendship and camaraderie. I think that it manages to put all of those in the right place. And I think that grounds it really well in characters and faces. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from watching that. Of course. We have yet another pair of retrospectives. This is a bill of films from early Hollywood. The first one we're unable to see is A Woman of Affairs by Clarence Brown from 1928. And here is the description as, For the first time in decades in New York, one of Garbo's best silent films, based on Michael Arlen's The Green Hat, this is one of the few roles Garbo chose for herself, generally considered to have been her finest silent work. This tale of the lost generation allowed her to triumph even in a slouchy old tweed suit and a squashy felt hat, also starring John Gilbert, Louis Stone, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. I haven't heard of this film. Yeah, neither nope. did I. The next film, this next one was actually one of the first silent films I saw in class. And this is Cecil B. DeMille's The Cheat from 1915. It's about a, this is a tricky one, I guess you could say. <laughs> but it details this, even the production is sort of tricky because the film was made in 1915, but in the 1918 re-release, they changed the character. Oh. One of the main characters ethnicities. So we'll go off the 1918 one because that's the version that we saw. It's about a Burmese ivory king played by Sesue Ayakawa who becomes friends with this wealthy socialite 
who spends way too much, played by Fanny Ward, and her husband, a stockbroker husband, disapproves of both her spending and her friendship with Hayakawa's character. She eventually gets herself into dire financial straits, and Hayakawa's character agrees to provide the money in exchange for her sleeping with him. And she accepts these terms, but then manages to procure the money in the meantime and plans to give it to him. But he refuses and while they struggle, he brands her with this <laughs> with with his his symbol showing what he owns, and then she in response shoots him in the shoulder. And the husband is arrested for this shooting, and eventually the truth is found out at this courtroom scene where Aikawa's character is almost torn apart by the mob <laughs> and the couple is reunited yeah this is a tricky one it's fine as a film i think it's generally fine yeah i mean i was actually surprised at how much i liked it on a sort of formal right. level as i was watching it even I, I guess i didn't really realize exactly what year it came out and thought it was a slightly later silent than it was and i was somewhat surprised when i finished the movie to realize that it came out the same year as birth of a nation because i actually i find that this film i think actually has more there's more here that is like nascent hollywood to me than there is in birth of a nation right. and yeah. like the way that melodrama is sort of subsumed by genre the bourgeois atmosphere which is definitely not something that Griffith is usually interested in. Both those things seem like a stronger blueprint for where Hollywood would go than Griffith, really. But interesting that if you're going to posit this as like an alternate seed for Hollywood, it also is infected with like unsettling racial uh, politics, to say the least. I think this was actually Um, pretty well known, especially at the time. And I think it influenced a lot of directors to come, I think. I mean, DeMille has always been sort of cited as one of the great directors and a very influential person without really many specific films being cited in those cases. And I think this is probably his earliest highly influential work. I just didn't think this was very dramatically interesting and like racist enough that it made me actively dislike it, sort of. I think that Ward's character is just, until she's actually branded, I think she's just totally unsympathetic. Because yeah, she's, she spends kind of... so much, she borrows $10,000 in 1915 yeah. money. I mean. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to be dumb. To yeah. like... Well, she's very clearly like an idiot. I mean, right, yeah. like I think the, yeah. the narrative developments of the film are the least interesting stuff about it. Oh, like yeah, it's the compositions, absolutely. the way that he plays with shadow in a way that seems different than what people were doing in, say, Germany in the Expressionist era. It's playing with shadow in a way that I think doesn't have, at least in my mind, a lot of antecedents or a lot of people who are doing the same thing concurrently. It's sort of like looking ahead um, in a lot of the lighting choices. Um, And that's sort of where I was keyed in most in the film, I think. And that's where most of, I think, the people that we know that really like the film, that's where they're drawn. But I think I was most drawn to Hayakawa's performance because I think it's really remarkable because it's in an entirely different register from every single other actor in it because while they're all in the fairly standard silent film acting mode, I think that he's so much more naturalistic. He's just so much more Yeah, he's not like twiddling his fingers as he's doing (laughs) evil deeds. He's just kind of embodying it, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, he has the same kind of like coolness throughout the oh, whole yeah, movie absolutely. you know like yeah. even when he is branding her with his yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i would say uh if you're interested in this sort of 
story uh, of a vaguely racist <laughs> early Hollywood <laughs> film about a wealthy Asian man's domination over an American woman, I'd say check out Frank Capra's The Bitter Tea of General Yen. Yeah, uh, that's a great movie. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. I know, Evan, you're a fan of The Mask of Fu Manchu. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's also a totally, that's like <laughs> almost its own thing. That's a, just an insane movie where Boris Karloff plays like a Chinese, uh, like, mad scientist who's like wants to take over the world um yeah that double feature of that and the bitter tea of general yen would be like a truly amazing uh, like hollywood at its most orientalist uh yeah, oh, yeah. program yeah uh, but both of those films i think are orientalist and at the same time there's something else sort of happening subterraneanly that's critiquing that the cheat does not have anything going on quite like that right. he's not very self-aware First film we have in this part is Renee Alio's first film, The Shameless Old Lady from 1965. And this was actually, I think, one of the more significant discoveries of this festival for me and for Evan. Dan, this was the only film I think that was available that you weren't able to see in time. This is based on a Bertolt Brecht short story. It details the life of this 70-year-old woman immediately after her husband has died. Up to this point, she was very frugal, very careful with money, especially as she was raising her sons and providing for her husband. After he dies, she becomes more and more profligate in the way she spends, and she enjoys life a lot more. She becomes friends with a sometime hooker and a group of anarchists. <laughs> and... This is all conveyed actually in a really strong way that I think anticipates actually a lot of film trends to come. I was really taken with it. I think it has a really good understanding of the character and this process of going through first the first 20 minutes detail this morning period and it shows the family all gathering at this woman's house. Having that at the beginning gives a good anchor for what transpires after that and I think it's a very strong film. Yeah I mean I think even beyond just the sense it has for her character which I do agree is quite strong. The other thing that really struck me about the film is it has a really great social sense of the town that they live in is wonderfully detailed in a very casual way. It's all sort of happening on the edges of the film. It doesn't go super far out of its way to introduce elements about the town, but I think you get a really strong sense of like literally where things are in the town and her interactions with the people and the way that her sphere of interaction continues to sort of move out from the center, which is her home throughout the film is something that I was really interested in. And I think Alio, I wouldn't really say he has like a 
distinctive eye exactly, but it's like a very sharp eye. Like he is working in like a sort of naturalist style, but he's very attentive to framing and composition. And the way he cuts between scenes is almost like proto PLA in a way. It jumps between time. Like now in PLA, you don't get any demarcation of that time. Here you do get some title cards that tell you what month you're in. But even without those title cards, even when you're within those months, like the way it moves between scenes is very quick and time seems very fluid. And sometimes one cut is a day and sometimes that same cut is six months later. And that way that it moves as her life kind of expands outward, I think gives us a sense that her life, which was very staid and contained in this space of her house and unchanging for 40 years or however long she was married, all of a sudden has sped up because she's interacting with all these more exciting things. You see her going into a department store and like interrogating, you know, a juicing machine and like just like these banal things or like when she's buying a car, there's a really great scene and the way that that's shot, I think is very interesting. And all that stuff just makes it seem like her life is picking up speed. And then of course, when you get to the end of the film, you've got this sort of propulsion that wasn't there at the beginning in that 20 minute sequence you're talking about where it is kind of literally dead as her husband's dying. And then this really lovely coda that just basically says that she got to live her life and had 18 months and then she herself died. And so I found myself very moved by the way that it sort of ramps that up and then just ends. Right, absolutely. It's very destructive and the way that sometimes it cuts in the middle of a conversation to a different one. That's all done very well. And we definitely need to mention the main character is played by Sylvie and she is really really remarkable she absolutely anchors the film and she's actually the first national society of film critics best actress winner the nsfc was established in 1966 and she won the first best actress prize for that and she has such a twinkle in her eye that's really the defining image of it is her face which is very weathered but it seems to get i think one character even mentions that she looks younger and younger every day and you really see that and you see how much she lights up throughout this film, Mm -hmm. how how much care and how much joy she has throughout this film. And that's contrasted with a lot of development of one of her sons who runs a truck company and his son who wants to be a musician. And the intersection of those strands works really well for me. And as long as we're saying about filmmakers that this sort of anticipates for me to name three perhaps outlandish examples, Romer for the month structure, Mm the delineation by months. There's a shot before she becomes this exuberant figure where she's just in her kitchen preparing things that honestly reminded me a little bit of Ackerman, but it's a more angular composition. But the duration of it reminded me of Ackerman. And her general persona actually reminds me a lot of late Anis Varda. Yeah, I can see that. Well, the other thing I think is worth mentioning about Sylvie, the actress too, is that she was a actress for a long time, but was largely like a character actress and had not, I think, ever had a lead role in a film and this was the only film that she ever acted in as the lead and it was the last film that she made so I think it's sort of an interesting actor tribute in that way to elevate someone so late in their career to a lead role is somewhat unusual in and of itself absolutely and it's a film that it's not simply a case of her becoming a younger person she's still very cognizant of her old age and the characters that she interacts with are aware of it but they choose to use it in a way that enhances everyone's experience well and and that's one thing I really like about the movie too is you really see why the younger people are drawn to her and don't 
they understand that she's an older woman, but they don't treat her differently, really. And yet you sense that her sons just don't see that in her at all. And yet, like, as the audience member, you totally see why this young bar girl or whatever she is and the anarchists take to this woman. And she's very charming. It sounds like I should have made time for it. I was surprised that it was as good as it was, but yeah, yeah, it's worthwhile. (laughs) I think Elio has a few films later in the festival as well so yeah so maybe i'll catch up the next film is another czech film ivan passer's 1965 film intimate lighting which is about peter a sort of professional symphony musician coming back to his more provincial home in the czech countryside to play a concert but he stays at his old friend who has a given name but he calls him bamba and to stay with him and his family peter has his girlfriend Steppa who comes along with him who's kind of more of a younger wilder person than uh, him and Bamba Peter Bamba Bamba's father and then a older doctor they're all musicians so at certain points they're playing classical music in the living room it's sort of this chaotic weekend that we follow them they go to a funeral where Bamba and his father are playing trumpets we mostly follow them we sort of see the frayed relationship craziness at Bamba's house like there's a chicken running around in the garage and then as soon as he tries to get that one chicken out all the chickens flood in and he turns on the car and moments like that runs over some of them yeah he runs he runs over the first chicken he's trying to get out in the first place Um, (laughs) we get a lot of moments like that it all kind of there isn't really much of a plot to speak of necessarily but that's sort of the vibe of the film and this is a short one 71 minutes yeah. I would say it's quite a bit funnier than, yeah, you know, Black Peter or uh, some of the other drags. Well, the again, is I don't have a low bar to judge it by. I can't really say <laughs> I found this particularly yeah. uh, amusing. Uh, and This might be your low yeah, bar. Well, what's odd is that the, at 71 minutes, actually, even though I didn't really like the movie that much, kind of wish it were longer because I think the biggest problem with the film yeah. is that it doesn't, unlike when we were talking about Loves of a Blonde, give you any sense of the social world in which this film takes place. This film could be taking place on the moon for all I know. I don't get any sense of why I should be interested in this particular place and these particular people and what informs their lives. Like, I'm usually down for these kind of low-key, like, let's just drink a lot and hang out movies. But you have to, I think, provide a context in which that's taking place, either character-wise or socially, and the film failed to do that for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's... No Hong Sang Su. <laughs> no. I think we've mentioned Hong in every single one of our podcasts so far, and I'm, I'm secretly wondering if we're going to be able to mention him in every single podcast. But I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. But but regardless, I think yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that the characters are more types than anything else, and I don't think that they're really embodied in any specific way. I think that the film it has zero narrative to speak of, and I don't even find the weekend particularly chaotic. I think it's just events happening, and it's basically a series of long interactions placed side by side, and it really depends on which interactions catch fire which ones don't there's a pretty good rehearsal where bombas peter bombas's father and the doctor are playing in a string quartet and you see the sort of sniping at each other that that (laughs) bombas and his father have and things like that work and probably the best moment for me is where peter's girlfriend she's just overcome with a laughing fit and she's just cackling for something like three minutes and that's the best probably the best part of the film for me 
Yeah, but even in that moment, it's not really clear what she's laughing because what happens to make her laugh isn't is it, all Aren't they just, like, trying to get the kids <laughs> so, to like, eat, like, chicken sense. or something? I don't yeah, and, and the, yeah, the kid, like, and they throws like, throw the chicken at each other. And it smashes like into a beer It just feels really thinly. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I think maybe these ideas for moments to happen and these sort of characters to bounce off of each other, but yeah, in these ways that are just not really fully explored or fully set up so that we actually have a real sense of what's going on. I think, Ryan, what you said about the characters being types is really spot on. That's kind of the main sticking point of the movie. Right. Things like a long sequence where Peter and Bombas are just smashed on moonshine things like that work other scenes just don't yeah the movie gets like a a touch more interesting visually too during that sequence at night like they go outside and there's kind of a somewhat remarkable shot of them like coming over walking up a hill i think and there's a car like coming over cresting over the other side of the hill and it provides some like nice silhouettes but yeah visual senses pedestrian just yeah. there yeah yeah one final note i think that's interesting is that ivan passer though this is his only film in the milk film festival he's part of the trend of czech filmmakers moving to the u.s also including mm-hmm. foreman and ivan passer also directed such films as cutter's way and born to win which i've heard pretty good things about yeah but, yeah i want to check mm-hmm. out his american film i mean at yeah. least cutter's way yeah. cutter's way sounds very more, different but... than <laughs> what's happening here right yeah so. Uh, quite a bit the next film in this double feature is actually longer than the featured film i'm suspecting this and the other double feature to come or feature and uh also appearing on this program but actually longer i think maybe that they were more interested in the featured film but they didn't want to just show a 70 minute or 45 minute film by itself so they threw on a slightly longer film but anyway so this is alexander petrovic's three from 1965, a Yugoslavian film. And this is in sort of the manner of the first New York Film Festival's In the Midst of Life. It has three vignettes taking place during World War II between the first two vignettes take place during the 12-day actual conflict between Yugoslavia and Nazi Germany. And the last one takes place during the end of World War II, proper three years later. They all follow one character, a student, at least he's introduced as a student in the first segment. In the first one, he's part of a crowd of refugees trying to leave before the German forces overrun their area. And in the midst of this, there's a man who is accused of being a spy by both military police who arrive on the scene and by the crowd. And the student's the only one who tries to stand up for him, but his efforts are to no avail and the man is shot. The second one is about the student running from German forces in a kind of an amazing chase sequence. I actually really like this chase sequence, but he eventually runs into a fellow Yugoslavian soldier and they try to escape together, but the soldier essentially gives himself up for the student and the soldier is executed in brutal fashion. And the last one is the student now in charge of a military unit. And he seems to recognize a woman who's being convicted of collaborating with the enemy. And he doesn't really, he just observes as the woman and many other German collaborators are executed. And I think that the director has said that the film is like the protagonist is essentially death in three forms. And it's all about this character witnessing this death and being unable to really prevent these. And I did quite like it. I think ultimately the way that it organized all these deaths around this one character worked pretty well for me. And I think that the directorial style brought out some of the more visceral aspects of that. It's a fairly fleet film, but it finds time to linger on these three individual vignettes. One good story 
two bad ones. <laughs> I, uh, Which one's the good one? I think it, the chase sequence. I mean, it's very clearly yeah. adapted from short stories, which it tells you at the beginning of the film. Right. But even if you didn't know that, it'd be pretty clear. The problem is that the short stories are probably not good because like, there's this really budding quality to the way that they underline the points. Oh <laughs> that, that they're making. I just think of the end of the chase <laughs> the first sequence one? where he's oh, the, okay. there's like a Shawshank Redemption moment where he sticks <laughs> out his arms and yells "Oh, life" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, oh, for God. me, I thought the first one was even more. Uh, oh yeah, where the questionable. Wife, I uh, yeah, so they, he was they, shot. I was like, his wife and child are gonna come in two minutes later, and two minutes yeah, later they came. Yeah, it's just like really pat in a way. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I do think that middle sequence when it's just operating as a chase film and isn't trying to get its point across is pretty effective. It has a number of really striking aerial shots, oh, right. and you can really see them like moving across like huge swaths of the landscape, and that worked for me. But the rest of it, the other two stories, just to me, were very obvious. The last one felt very much like The Lives of Others, which is one of the worst movies <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> Florian so Hankel von Donnersmack? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <boy>. So that, I basically agree with pretty much what Evan said. I think I maybe found it a little more... I like the sort of mob mentality in the first story but yeah it just goes to this thing that's very pat and not very interesting but i think i agree with ryan that it's fleet like i wasn't really bored in this i just like yeah. at the end yeah. of the other two stories like my retina was detaching from my eye rolling back so far into my head <laughs> like it just like there's at the end of this the third story the guy walks out and he's looking sad or whatever because this woman's about to get killed and then man and woman come riding by in a buggy and their wedding oh, yeah. attire you know just a reminder that like life goes on during <laughs> wartime I mean, i'm just like okay yeah so oh uh, yeah <laughs> i do agree that there's an unfortunate tendency to underline but i think that what transpires for that i think avoids that i think it's pretty detailed in the way that it especially that mob mentality i think that's what made the film click and then it kept mostly in that register throughout and yeah. how it switches from because the refugees are initially looting this abandoned train car because a train has come and already left without taking anyone and how that switches yeah. from their outrage with the military police to immediately accusing this man i think that works you get a sense of like the sort of social chaos of war and what these conflicts sort of bear down on the people there that's what really interested me in that scene and probably the whole film too the aerial stuff was cool but i don't know this is the best thing I've ever seen. Right. I think that Petrovic's direction just in general is pretty tactile, pretty focused on, especially guns. I think the way he photographs guns as people are running through is quite yeah. effective. The next film we have is Nicholas Yanto's The Roundup from 1966. This is a really, really remarkable film, and I had really no conception of Yanto before this, but I was really taken with it. It takes place in 1868, surrounding this attempt to destroy this gang of highwaymen, basically. And it takes place entirely in this wide open space, the steps of Hungary. Prison complex, where they're just storing all these bodies. Most of the film takes place within this prison and the hut immediately outside. And it doesn't really have any main characters to speak of. In fact, I would argue that the protagonists are actually the prison guards and prison officials, which is an interesting choice. The entire film is about weeding through this 
dense web of lies, deceptions, deceit in an effort to find who the actual people the government is seeking. It's reduced to moment by moment interactions and deals made between prisoner and guard. I think is really, really effective. And Yanzo's direction is composed mostly of very long takes, very fluid, very impressive tracking shots through this prison. And it is this widescreen canvas that he's working with, which reminded me, I mean, I was sort of coming off this Jacques Tenor kick I was on recently, so it sort of reminded me of Wichita or Mm -hmm. some of his other westerns in that regard. I don't know how much of an influence that was, but that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I think this is another filmmaker who, for me, is in a moment of transition, it seems to me here. I haven't seen any Yanso films before this one, but every idea I think that he has here, and by my count, there's like two probably, uh, is... (laughs) is put to better use in the film he made right after this, which is the red and the white. And I think here, the idea is the way that the camera tracks these people in this prison, the way that it lingers, and even I would say the movie is kind of infatuated with the misery of bureaucracy in this prison. All of that's kind of the point of the thing, but it's so constricted. Like, it has both such a big canvas with the way that he frames things, but then such a constricted setup that I just feel like everything I could actually critique the film about as to why I didn't like it sort of is easy to turn around and say, well, that's the point uh, of the thing. Which is probably what I'd say. Um, But it just doesn't... I mean, I can see all that. Like, it's a film that I can 100% observe what it's doing, and in some ways, like, it accomplishes that. I just... I find that Yanso applies this style to much more striking effect very quickly after. Yeah, I'm really interested to see that. I've heard it's absurdly great, but that'll be in two episodes from now so i'm excited for that wow yeah i would i mean i do think i was definitely more interested in this one than you were evan but i do think that it's sort of i would maybe push back a little bit against ryan your claim that the main characters are the prison guards because i do think gaidar or uh whatever the man with the coat right. with the burly right. mustache I, I mean i feel like he's sort of our main point of interest once he is sort of introduced and interrogated and most of the film was following him and that once he's killed which is in his sleep he's sort of shoved away into a cell for the night the film loses some interest at a certain point and our connection to really finding out who is representing this gang and who knows where this outlaw is sandor rosa real hungarian outlaw i guess you know sort of a big figure in hungarian history after that Godyard character is killed we really kind of lose that moment-to-moment investment Yansko doesn't really give us time to invest in the other highway men who might have answers for this we don't really have any investment because Gadyar is trying to find these men who have killed like just enough more men right. than him to be condemned in worse ways than he was and with the other characters it kind of becomes this free-for-all almost until there's just no hope left i think maybe i just found Gadyar's character just so venal and so cowardly yeah. that like i can't really accept yeah. him as a as a main character especially because i think he gets killed sure. something like halfway through well i think that i get i think what you're saying that the guards are the main characters of the film i mean i'm not sure i agree that that's like narratologically what's happening but yanso's interest 
in coordinating all these people. I feel like Yonso's ideological alignment is against the guards, but his instinctual aesthetic interests are actually aligned with their kind of fascism, which makes for a movie that is (laughs) like weirdly torn in the middle between what it says it is and what it is clearly takes pleasure in enacting. Yeah, I see what you mean in the way that it's organizing all these men in the prison into its own frames. Yeah, it sort of has to adopt Mm -hmm. the same mentality of the prison and like the sort of structure of it. Right, I think the film is basically a chess match when it comes Mm -hmm. down to it. It's, It's about moving pawns, moving figures throughout the frame and i think it works for me just almost a purely formal film at times and just how different lines and different columns of people and there's a recurring image of these hooded prisoners walking in a circle i think that really gets at what the roundup's going for i think that's pretty plain to see and i think it just boils down to if that's something that you respond to that might be a bit uncharitable to you guys but i think it's also interesting to point out that this film just starts with this series and like a sort of lecture on the hungarian Mm. history that leads up to this which is i don't know an interesting way to start the film but you know also maybe seems to be catering towards the international audience thinking this is going to be shown at festivals not necessarily in the country where people might have more familiarity mm-hmm. with it which I maybe speaks to Jansko's that sort of duality between what he's going for ideologically and how he's presenting it yeah I want to note that the prison for whatever reason the architectural look reminded me of Passion of Joan of Arc to some extent, and also, even more readily, the compound in Ken Russell's The Devils. Oh, yeah, I, I can see that. such a imposing quality. Well, it's kind of like modernist, too. Like, it's, oh, it's like, right, weirdly, right. like, they hired some modernist architect to build their prison, like, the blank walls and the, like, stucco look of yeah. it. Right, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really remarkable film in ways both good and ill, I guess you could say. <laughs> The next film we have, our first Godard film of this festival year, is Masculine Feminine from 1966, starring Jean-Pierre Léod, friend of the pod. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> you go. On yeah, we, yeah, he's still alive. Michel Piccoli is also still alive. Sometimes. Really? How old is Michel uh, Piccoli? Wow. He might be 90. Yeah. And, and, it's probably like 90. Yeah, something. and Belmondo, too. The three of the old Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, Masculine Feminine definitely heralding a shift in Godard's manner of filmmaking in ways that I think are really fascinating, but I still need to get a handle on. The narrative, so to speak, is focused on Paul, played by Leo, a young man who comes into contact with this aspiring singer, played by an actual singer, Chantal Goya, in sort of the Anna Karina vein, I guess. The subtitle to Masculine Feminine is 15 Fates Precis, 15 Specific Events, even though this is played with and blatantly disregarded at certain points it points to something of the film structure it's more episodic than anything else it doesn't really feel beholden to follow a coherent narrative though it does appear to be in chronological order and details the slow relationship developing between paul and the singer madeline eventually at the end paul dies he accidentally fell out of the window or something like that but it in terms of the actual content of the film honestly i think it has a similar aim as Le Jolie Mai by Chris Marker in trying to detail the city and especially the way that the youth interact with the city and this changing culture and surprisingly actually it's pretty limited on cinematic references though there of course it does interface with the film it's more about 
societal engagement and how yeah. people interact and behave in public. And in that, I think it's really, really strong. Yeah, and this is the film where he has the title card that says these are the children of Karl mm-hmm. Marx and Coca-Cola. Right. Yes, he's deliberately engaging with youth culture and these sort of pop culture hallmarks. It's sort of like his pop mm-hmm. art movie in a way. Yeah, I mean, again, I think, well, it's been a long time since I've seen this as well, but I have May 68 on the mind these days. And I think, Ryan, you're right that this is the one that seems like he's attuned to something in the culture that's about ready to burst. And I think you sense it in this film more than in a lot of his other films. And I think it also, as you're suggesting, initiates that trajectory of moving away from cinema and more towards politics, which I think Pierre Lefou provides a brief detour back to movies, I think, before he dives all the way into right. that with Two Things I Know About Her and Weekend, where he, I think, really embraces is the political interests in favor of the cinematic ones that he has. And yeah, I think this is one of Godard's strongest films from the 60s, but it's been a while since I've seen it, so. Yeah, I wasn't able to rewatch it either, but I looked at a bit of it today, and I forgot that it's maybe one of his sort of funnier films, which might sort of just be from the presence of Leo, <laughs> I just think is not maybe yeah. thought of as a sort of natural comedian, but he is maybe by association of him as Antoine Dwinnell just makes him. I do remember that one scene in this film where he He's just berating a projectionist <laughs> for whatever the mistake was in the film. He just goes into the projection booth and starts screaming at him from this notebook that he has. And I feel like it, this is before the second feature-length Antoine Duenel film was made. This was sort of Godard's stab at an Antoine Duenel adventure. Truffaut famously attacked Godard mm-hmm. for during their breakup, I guess, in, yeah. the, in the fallout of Day for Night, where... He said that he didn't know that Leo could be scared on film until he saw Masculine Feminine. But, and to an extent, I guess you could see that because I see certain self-consciousness in it. But he, I think there's a real range. I definitely agree with the notion that his acting style has remained constant pretty much over the decades. But at the same time, he has a really strong range in this. He's able to convey the manicness. Yeah. He's, He's nervy. A, yeah. A, a contemplation. I mean, the opening of the film is really just that one close-up on him, and he's just right. sitting there. But even then, he's not calm at all. He's waiting. He's in anticipation. I think he's maybe like trying to light a cigarette and sort of failing at it, not really getting it. I mean, you really just get this sort of nervy, jumpy sense from him. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like, I mean, maybe his career would have probably gone the same way if he hadn't made this film, but I feel like maybe working with Godard in this point in his career is probably what pushed him to work with Rivet, work with, you know, all these other wilder auteurs and on these sort of crazier projects. Like, I don't think you get layout and out one without layout and masculine feminine. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think layout himself has sort of talked about how Truffaut was more like an older brother or even like a father right. figure to him and Godard was yeah. like a hero, you know? And yeah. like, yeah. I think his ability or his the chance that he got to work with Godard, I think, gave him, at least my sense of it is, I think it gave him the confidence that he wasn't just the embodiment of Truffaut's childhood, but actually an interesting performer in his own right. And I do think that he does anchor a lot of what might come across without him as more disparate moments and disparate ways of actually filming. There's one extended scene where he's interviewing a young woman in entirely static shot and he's off screen but you can tell that based on the way that he says things how his character is feeling he has a 
kind of a transparency in this, which is really remarkable. But yeah, this is a film that's really about a fragmented society that's so fragmented that it has to be conveyed in this particular way. Otherwise, it doesn't really function. And I think that it works for that reason. I did rewatch it. But I still find it a really tricky film to really grapple with. And I think that yeah. it might take maybe two more viewings to even come close to really getting at how it functions. Yeah, I mean, it might even take a reading list to really oh, sure. you know, <laughs> kind of get through Godard, what's going on in Godard's brain, at least. I just don't think it really coheres as a complete movie. Like, I think that despite the fact that it deviates from its subtitle and doesn't really follow it exactly, like, the subtitle is telling you something about the movie, which is Absolutely. that it's like a presentation of ideas, and I think, as you said, Ryan, a bunch of scenes rather than a coherent, tangible narrative, which I think you see, again, he takes that even further, and like two or three things I know about her. And I should mention that this is the only film from Breathless Through Weekend that is not shot by Raul Guitar, shot by Willie Currant, who also shot The Clare Terrors. Mm. Uh, you can sort of tell that there is a difference it does feel a little less dynamic in the way it conveys i think there are some it's either very static shots or these really elaborate tracking shots and i do wonder what it would have been like if kutar had actually shot this but that's something that we can't really discuss no, yeah. yes. can't really imagine yeah. yeah next up is the hunt directed by carlos sara a spanish film about Four men, three sort of older men, middle-aged, and one younger son-in-law. They go on a rabbit hunt on one of the men's property, which is being maintained by a much lower class groundskeeper there. And they go on the hunt, and then they go from hunting animals to hunting each other. (laughs) (laughs) It dives into all sorts of male insecurities, eventually ending with one of them dying. Thing. All three of them. All three? Oh, wow. Well, yeah. So it shows you how much I care. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually maybe the first real split in opinion of this podcast. I think that I really liked him. Neither of you cared for it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I'm intuiting that Dan was not interested in wallowing in this fetid pit of masculinity, which was also <laughs> largely my issue with the film. You know, I... I, when yeah. I read about it, I read that Sam Peckinpah was like a big fan of it, apparently. Oh, um, and I was like, well, that, that makes, makes sense. But I, I do like Sam Peckinpah. And I think part of what doesn't work about this film for me, it's almost apart from the film itself, which is just that the ideas that it's exploring here of these men out in the desert, in the hot sun, who are then encountering the toxicity of their lives is just, has been done to death a million times since. And it's playing with Spanish politics in a way that is, I think, pretty obvious, but probably felt more daring at the time. It's just one of those movies that to me feels like it's a time capsule that probably I can understand why someone would see this when it came out and feel like it was like slapping them across the face, but it feels just kind of lightweight now and well-trod ground. Maybe. I think that, I think I was just mostly drawn to Sara's actual sense of direction, which is very, very rapid, very... Yeah, it's very, very... I've seen Cria Cuervos, his other film, which has a young girl from The Spirit of the Beehive and Geraldine Chaplin, and it's a completely different style of direction mm. from here to there. Oh, interesting. 
Sara won the Silver Bear for Best Director at Berlin for this, and I think that it really captures a sense of claustrophobia even in these wide open spaces. It, most of the film takes place in this hunting ground, which is actually a former battlefield where many Spanish Republicans were slaughtered by such people. I think they even mentioned that the three veterans who were all Francoists, I think they mentioned that they had fought in this place, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And I think that gets at really what makes this for me more than just masculinist, because I think it's deeply tied to how each of these men who are related have just grown apart in this new society. I think it worked for me. I can't yeah. really... Yeah, I mean, there are some interesting dynamics that I just don't think get fully played out. Like, the man who owns the grounds, I mean, he is in need of borrowing money from a friend who's doing better off from him, but their relationship is so frayed that once he tries to bring it up in a more casual way, remember when, and then sort of asking in that way, the friend just sort of stops him cold and says, if you need money, I can't really provide for you. I think there are some interesting relationships in that sense, but I just feel like the characters and their problems are mostly on a sort of one-note basis. Well, they're also seen from the outside in, and like I think that's yeah. the distinction between this and Peckinpah. It's obvious why Peckinpah would have liked it, but the reason that, at least for me, the masculine stuff in Peckinpah doesn't turn me off is that it's self-lacerating. Yeah. Or I also thought of the film Wake and Fright, which is another film mm -hmm. that also features like copious on-screen animal death, um, <laughs> and, which this film has in spades. And yeah. that's another film that is from the inside out. It feels lived yeah. in in this hot, just sweaty male world. And this film, it's clinical in a way. The lunar quality of the landscape is the thing that I think about when I think about this film. And it feels like it's watching from a thousand foot distance. And that's, I think, partly why I couldn't really get into it. Well, I think it starts with that, but I think it quickly goes into the actual crevices, the actual sand and the dirt and the sweat of it all. I think the atmosphere yeah. created by the sweltering conditions works. I think it eventually it got there for me. I mean, yeah, you get a sense of the landscape, definitely. It just didn't get there. So the next film is Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, Sergei Parajanov's. This was somewhat into his career, but I think this was the first film that he really considered his own singular artistic work. He had, I think, co-directed a number of films and directed, I think, a few films on his own at this point, but they were apparently more conventional, which is something that this film is most certainly not. Um, I, I had only seen one other Parajana film previously, which is The Color of Pomegranates, which I think is also a great film. But at least in my memory, that film is much more reliant on these sort of like tableau vivant compositions and this very ornamented look. And I think the first thing that really struck me about this film, which tells the story of a young man, um, I don't even know how I'm going to summarize this film, <laughs> a young man who uh, has a woman that he loves and they live in the same village, but their relationship is sort of soured by the fact that her father was involved in killing the man's father when he was a child, which is one of the first things you see in the film. And eventually he loses the woman to an accident and then goes on to live his life after that. But really, the film is this extremely earthy, poetic, and very fluid exploration of this specific culture and very much has the feeling of like a folk tale and is really attuned to folk ways of thinking like the way that the plot moves narrative logic it's relying on something more primitive and more primal that's what i find really striking about the movie 
Yeah, it has this almost sort of mythological mm-hmm. or even like fairy tale quality at times. You know, there's these moments where when his father is killed by an axe in the beginning of the film, the blood sort of pours over oh. the screen and then, yeah, later just oh, sort of transforms. In that scene where it pours over the screen, the most amazing thing about that is like it cuts from the blood rolling across the screen yeah. to these like horses like in like That's red it, yeah, negative right. or something. Like these I'm red in horses. the same formation as the blood. Like, oh, I was just so amazed by that. It's just unbelievable. And there's all, isn't there that shot of the tree falling down too from the perspective? Yeah, Yeah, that's that's like the, that's like the fourth shot in the film. And you, and you know immediately, like, this is oh, this is what the film's for. Yeah. yeah, it's just this incredible, and even like the story in its own way is fairly simple, but it's just filmed in the most complex and really like feels like its own universe essentially, and it's playing out in that way, and that you're not. It doesn't feel simplistic, even though it is simple. It feels like it's this own very complicated thing going by it, operating outside of what we're usually used to in these narrative formations absolutely this film is something like 80 percent handheld tracking shots and they're just shot with such a wild abandon they're just moving around rapidly panning oftentimes it just goes into a blur and you just see and that's only enhanced by the foreground there's often trees in the way or other foliage and i don't think i've seen a film that looks or moves Yeah, I can't really say I have. And for 90 minutes, it covers such an expanse of time. I mean, it starts in his childhood and his childhood with the woman who he truly loves. And then it goes into their young adulthood where they're about to get married. And then the despair after that, then his meeting the woman who he eventually marries, then his second marriage, (laughs) then her betrayal of him, and then his death. (laughs) And it's in like 95 minutes or something. Yeah, and his own funeral too. And the ways in which they make him seem older aren't unconvincing because I guess Russian men can just age really well you know just add facial hair to <laughs> Russian men and it makes them look much older yeah it's really just phenomenal in that regard it's pretty much total sensory overload that's absolutely a compliment yeah it's vertiginous and the other thing that I find so interesting about it is that it seems to exp- like be constantly expanding like it's a simple oh, story right. and yet at every moment, it seems like it's just like molding and sporing yeah. like into this other thing that at any second could like in, in different hands would run totally out of control. And yet somehow like Parajanov channels that energy in such a way that it doesn't ever get exhausting or yeah. like leave you behind. It really carries you through the whole thing, which is in and of itself, I think, quite an achievement given the complexity of what's happening. Yeah, uh, the on only other film right. it actually reminded me of was Ivan the Terrible Part 2 and that color sequence in there. And it really feels mm-hmm. like Parajanov is sort of taking what Eisenstein was doing with color in that sequence and really just stretching it out to this whole narrative of this almost nightmarish hyper-reality in a way. And then at the same time, these kind of right. beautiful dreamscapes too. It accumulates so many symbols throughout the film and it begins with religion. The father's killed for insulting the rich man in church. And it keeps that, but keeps adding on like evan said it keeps adding on traditions and eventually adds on sorcery the Mm -hmm. the second the woman that ivan marries essentially performs sorcery in order to get a child right (laughs) and verges on the supernatural at times and it's just it's really remarkable in in ways that i can't that demand visual visual assistance really to (laughs) capture even an iota of this film is going for 
And the colors. I mean, I feel like, I'm not sure if it was a different film stock or a different color process, but even the colors look totally I'm different. Sure, from yeah. Any sort I, of I would say in the same, even the terrible colors are really, they're mm-hmm. much different from other. I do think there is something to Russian film stock. If you watch yeah. a lot of other like 60s color Russian films, they have a similar color tone. But, you know, I don't know the specifics of why the film stock looks like that. Although I will say, I think there is some contention in this particular case of the way that the Russian restoration of the film was done. Mm-hmm. I think it. some people contend that it's like too dark and the colors are, like, too boosted or something. But I think even aside from that, there is something particular to that look of Russian color films from around this time. Like, in Enchanted Desna and uh, the other right. films that... What's your name, Ryan? Sonseva. Yeah. Uh, but those films have a unique color palette, too. And yeah. Also, one of the most bizarre things about Chaz Forgotten Answers is, is that it has these intertile cards that aren't even really chapters or demarcations. They're more just underlining certain things right they pop up quite frequently it's a another way of suggesting the folk legend Mm -hmm. origins that this so strongly draws on well and the music too i mean we didn't mention the music like the music is all composed of indigenous ukrainian folk music i think and that's part of the music is constant throughout the movie and that's another thing that really gives it that sort of sense that you're being like carried along through the whole thing the movement is the tempo is as set by the music as it is by the camera work absolutely yeah Welcome back. The first film we have in this final part is another omnibus film, Pearls of the Deep, from the Czech New Wave, featuring five different stories, all written by the same person, Bohumil Harabal. Oh, these are Harabal? Oh, I might have actually watched this if I had known these were I like Harabal. He's a good, good writer. Okay. Anyways. It was definitely one of the more notable films of the Czech New Wave, and I think we can safely say that with this, Catalyst and Witnesses, Czech New Wave apathy continues in pace. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah this is a yeah i mean it's not even that it's a mixed bag the previous two omnibus films have been a mixed bag definitely it's not even that but there's no real standouts here it's it's just yeah that's the problem is that there isn't even like like perry vupar there was the romer segment which is probably my favorite and the Godard and the chabrol which all had their moments and then the two dumb ones and another <laughs> one but, uh, and John but this one i wouldn't say they're all dumb that's not fair to them but they do just all they all kind of work maybe in the same way that intimate lighting works or even loves of blonde to its benefit it's just as these sort of 
strange societal settings and these odd interactions that come out of them, these small absurdities of Chuck life, they just don't really, none of them added up to much for me. Even thinking about them now, I can't particularly place one over the other. I do right. remember Vera Chitiolva's, her segment having some nice, more poetic camera work, but I, sure. I can't remember what the context of it was, really. Right. I think that my hypothesis regarding the Czech New Wave is that it's primarily interested in milieu or interested yeah. in stories and the way that stories are told. I think that it's perhaps unique to a certain extent in the context of the new waves that cropped up throughout the world in the 60s and 70s because it's really not all that particular about form other than, say, using handheld or using non-professional yeah. actors. That's, to my experience extent of their interest in form it's really about just what's actually being shown what's content is there. yeah and yeah that makes these films very inconsistent in that regard because it really depends on the stories themselves on the scenarios yeah and that's not a mode of filmmaking that i'm especially interested in, i guess at this particular point in my viewing but we can i guess tackle the films the shorts one by one so yeah. the first one is the death of mr balthazar which combines two titles of films that I love. Yes. Uh, but uh, this is directed by Jerry Menzel. I think this was my favorite. I think. Is that the race cars? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that I liked it the most. Yeah, it's about spectators at this motorcycle race who are watching, and it's, I think, an international motorcycle race, and they're especially rooting for the eponymous Mr. Balthazar, who I think has sustained an injury, but they say that he's just so skilled that he'll beat the competition even though he's pushing off on one leg or something like that. And while they're waiting for this to start, it cuts between quite a few different people all telling stories, the same stories repeating it, embellishing it in certain ways, and I think that that is perhaps the clearest example. That's what really got me thinking about the checking wave as a milieu-focused yeah, film. Yeah, absolutely. Movement. And it's sort of this, I mean, it's like this weirdly communal and popular event, like people are sitting up in trees for it. There's right. a huge crowd attracted just to watch these race cars like go around one. Right. It's not It's not like on a track like where you'd see a NASCAR race or something like that. And it cuts frequently to not even the people who are actually talking, but these crowds just milling about on the streets and in the stands waiting for the race to begin. Yeah. And I think the stories are interesting enough that hearing them repeated again and again actually works fairly well, I guess. In its way. In know. its way. Um, Mostly static. Yeah. Film, but. The next one is called Imposters, directed by Jan Niemek, which is two old men who are at either a hospital or a retirement home telling these very, it becomes pretty obvious, these fake stories about their lives. One of them pretends to be this great journalist who uncovered all these different scandals and stuff and the other was this grand success of an opera singer I and mean, they basically just talk to each other about that and it's clear that they probably led much more quotidian lives than what they're describing there's a odd coda at the end where it cuts to these people i guess in the morgue who are discussing them and they mention that the newspaper reporter actually only had a few articles and like a gardening magazine or something and then the oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> opera yeah. opera singer sang like a concert yeah. in the chorus or something like that and so yeah so there are more exaggerations that yeah absolutely falsehoods right and it's again telling stories and this time set mostly in a single room and it's mostly just cutting between faces and it's a pleasant yeah. one and i think by far the shortest one if i'm not mistaken 
I thought yeah. it was like eight minutes or so. Could be mistaken about that. Yeah, but. it really didn't didn't go for that long. Right. The next one, I think it was easily God. the worst the worst one for me. Oh, uh, that one was that. That's when I tweeted that Chechnya was torture, <laughs> and that was during this film. It yes. I hated it. And it's expectedly or unexpectedly, it's the only one in color. But this is yeah. House of Joy by Evald Schrom who's one of the two directors that I haven't heard of and is in the festival later on. And it's about two insurance agents visiting this man to sell him life insurance. And they discover that he's a painter who is painted all over the walls of his house. And they uh-huh. also find his mother who describes yeah. herself as his muse or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's I think weird. it's a, it's, a it's basically there. something like a 25 minute, just it's look at so look at look you at, had me at insurance my... agent that was really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're weird insurance agents too like the yeah like one of them gets hooked into the painter's mindset something like that and the other one is yeah. just so ineffectual at every single moment yeah i would say as far as 20 minute uh color 60s portraits of eccentric painters go uh agnes varda's uncle yanko is the way to go with that that's a, that's a delightful film this is dreadful and the paintings are just bad I yeah mean, it's just not they're, good they're nothing <laughs> yeah they're, they're, and he's terrible <laughs> yeah. they're just doodles and he said that, he yeah. that once he's finished painting he wants to get the national gallery to to take the house so he and his mother can move into another one uh, it's ugh. oh my god it just doesn't I mean, even acknowledge like that absurd statement like it, yeah, it just, yeah yeah uh, the next one is called at the world cafeteria directed by Farahid Lova, and it's about a diner it takes place mostly mm. almost all in a diner and there's a wedding yeah. reception going on and it's basically a hub of activity a girl has hanged herself in the back room if I'm not mistaken, right. it's mostly about again telling stories. We're, yeah, we're, we're yeah, back at storytelling one. Another one, and there's a man who comes in who does metal work. I think sort of sheet metal art for factories or something like that. Yeah, it's mostly just about telling stories, and I didn't really pick up on this one. No, I didn't really get much out of it. I, but I do think there's one sort of interlude where it's light and shadow being played with, but I right couldn't be certain it does eventually leave the diner for kind of an odd ending yeah the bride because i think the groom has been arrested off screen for punching a policeman or something like that so the bride leaves with a policeman and they they frolic about in the trees or something like that and it's more handheld this one i think is more handheld than the other ones right than the others Uh, yeah it's just there the the last one is romance directed by yamil yeris Another director who I haven't heard of. And I think this was my second favorite or so. It's decent also. But it's about... Yeah. It's the only one that's not about telling stories. So Yeah. For the most part. But Although this one maybe has a bit more of a story in itself. Oh, definitely. Others. Definitely. Yeah. It's about a young Czech man who meets a young gypsy woman. They eventually enter into a relationship and become engaged. And that's basically the arc of the film. It's mostly about their interactions, the way that the sort of racial identity gets teased out a little bit, and just in how relationships develop, how they're actually quite mercurial, both of them. Or maybe the man is more just withdrawn, and the gypsy woman is just very animated by comparison, I guess. It kind of has the plot of, like, a Santana song (laughs) or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's just got like a sort of 60s song plot. Like he falls in love with the gypsy. And, <laughs> you know, all that sort of yeah. stuff. And it ends with the toddler peeing on a hill. <laughs> Yeah, for that that's the that's the final shot. That's where yeah. that's where the the end comes up. I yeah, so yeah, check new wave. We're still uncovered. It's it's a mixed bag, and I do get what how it's approaching. You know these absurdities of life under the communist rule of the period, but it really avoids that. The sort of more political question of it. It's more interested in milieu and these interactions, and I, I just think at a certain point that avoidance really gets on my nerves. Especially, I think I mentioned this before. I somewhat recently read Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, which he wrote in exile from Czechoslovakia, I think it was still, he writes with just such a force and such an anger about the regime that it, the lack of that in any of the films that I'm seeing is sort of frustrating for me now. Right. I'm drawn again to your point about genre enlivening these films, about mm-hmm. enlivening films that try to deal with social issues. Now. Yeah, right. And, and we, these, these we films don't, could definitely use that. They could use that. They could use a bit more of maybe even the just the genre conventions of a comedy or something. Right. Like, like even more, go more towards slapstick or go more towards screwball or something. Because a lot of these sort of approach that, but they don't really get there. Absolutely. The next film, another feature and another feature. Not not really Some a double feature. feature. <laughs> yeah, a feature and a sub-feature. A feature and B feature. Yeah. The first one in it is Louise Bunuel's Simon of the Desert from 1965. Very compressed, 45 minutes. And I basically adored this. I was really drawn to it. It's a very simple story, but one that yields really striking images and really striking moments. It takes place sometime in the 14th century or so, detailing this man who basically stands on top of this pillar in the desert. And the beginning is him moving to another pillar that has been provided by the by a, a wealthy man who's been inspired by his penance. Immediately it calls into question sort of this religiosity. And I think what really drew me into Simon the Desert is that it's definitely a religious film, but one that is pious and skeptical and equal measure and i think that gives it a lot of the charge and actually a lot of the comedy too it's quite a funny yeah it's very irreverent even in the beginning where he's been on this pillar for all this time and then they say oh come over to this pillar and they kind of they all transport him there because for some reason that one's more you know it's a new and improved pillar even though it's the exact same thing you know, it kind of creates this irreverence at the same time. It's been a, a while since I've seen this, but I do think that that sense of play is something that Boonwell maybe lost a little bit during his time in Mexico. I mean, I think actually many of those Mexican films are his best films, but he was working in a more constricted like studio system. And I think part of what's so fun about Simon of the Desert is this is, I mean, he's already been back in Europe for a few years at this point, but you really get the sense that this is him inaugurating his like really playful late style in a way here. Um, and he's sort of using this short, small format to start to work that out, I think. This is actually yeah. in Mexico. Oh, was it Mexico? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so... He, he's an independent in production in Mexico? I think so. In 1960, been, he, he yeah. returned to Spain to direct Very Diana. Yeah, and okay, I was he, thinking this was made in Spain, okay. He went into sec- a second exile back into Mexico where he did a first film in the New York Film Festival, The Exterminating Angel, and then Time of the Desert. And yeah, I think that going to your point about the production of it all, it's very constrained, but in a way that yields 
immense dividends film because it's almost theatrical in the way that it uses this one area of the desert and until the incredible 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 ending it stays entirely in this area around the pillar but Boonwell directs it in a style that feels energetic he frequently uses cranes and constantly reframing showing the surroundings that are around Simon and part of what makes Sign of the Desert such a wonderful watch is that the actor Claudio Brook, he never slips, he never breaks. He remains consistently dedicated to this role, even in the face of absurdities of various obstacles that are put by Satan, who's portrayed in a feminine incarnation by Sylvia Pinnell. He remains consistently pious throughout. There's a moment where he thinks that he's been lacking or he hasn't been pious enough, so he vows to stand on one leg until he feels ready and he actually manages to do so apparently so yeah it's a definitely plays heavily into the supernatural elements of religion in a way that i think is immensely maybe not faithful faithful might not be the right word but i think it's right for the type of story that this is trying to tell yeah i appreciate how open boonwell is about the metaphors in this film it's not some strange woman who's supposed to be part of the town i mean it's just Satan <laughs> in this form and you know there's something to be said about how he can really display his cards on the table in that way instead of and maybe that's the break that evan you were mentioning earlier the sort of transition mm-hmm. that he's working through in this film is that in those later films he really just kind of lays out his allegories just right there he doesn't really have any pretense of packaging it in a genre right i mean like so many of those mexican films, films i guess the earlier mexican films in the 50s is he's yeah. working within melodrama as the primary structure and he has like right, flights right. in those films where they do something different or strange or he focuses on right. some minor detail and magnifies it in a way that makes it odd but is still operating within that mode and he's definitely doing something else here right and i think this has one of my absolute favorite endings to any film (laughs) so this is the third time and satan says that is the last time that she will try to tempt simon and so satan takes simon to the modern world to a modern city you see it's introduced by an airplane flying in. <laughs> in and flying then, over him on his mm-hmm. pillar, right? I think so, right, right. Yeah. And then it cuts to the city and then into this packed nightclub where all these young people are dancing to the twist, a dance that Satan calls radioactive flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a five-minute scene at the very end where Simon, for the most part, is just sitting at a table as people are dancing around him and he's smoking a pipe. And Satan eventually gets up and dances with a man. And Simon says he just wants to go back. He doesn't really partake of the temptations in it. But she says that, I think someone else is already taking your place, so you have to wait. And it just ends on a freeze frame in this club as, as Satan's dancing. And it's basically sort of like a version of the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite ending for mm. me. It has that level of just totally breaking with the reality that you had known before and going into a completely different realm and a completely pleasurable realm, the way that the camera just sneaks through this. It's handheld, notably. The rest of the film is mm. mostly on cranes and things like that, but it's handheld just snaking through these young people just dancing. And it's not definitely not depicted as a mere wagging your finger moralizing at these people who are frivolous. It's another form of ecstasy in a very particular way. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I was with the ending, but I, I do like your read on it. Just a total delight. <laughs> I, I love this film. Yeah. 
So the second half of this double feature, the sort of B side uh, to it, is the longer film. Yeah, the much longer film, but, you know, by like forty minutes or so, is the man who had his hair cut short, directed by Andre Delvaux, Belgian film. I can't remember which town it's set in, but it is about a man who has his hair cut short <laughs> on a particular day. Uh, he's a teacher at like a private school. The particular day the film begins with, he is at the graduation ceremony for these young women who are graduating and one of whom he's completely obsessed with who later goes on to become an actress a successful I think stage actress and he in the intervening time after this whole graduation ceremony leaves the school and joins the courts he's a clerk there so then he goes on a work trip to this horrifying (laughs) death that they're investigating he's very shaken up by it and then later in the hotel he meets the same woman who he was so obsessed with and sees that she's quite successful um, has another man that she's staying in the hotel with and he is basically trying to live out his obsession with her and once he figures out that she's not as pure as he thought she was he kills her and then winds up in a mental institution. I think I liked this when I first watched it, uh, and then the more I thought about it, the less I, I got out of it. It's it's a certain film that doesn't uh, linger very long. It's a really weird movie. Uh, Another yeah, weird. Well, it's yeah, and this is, yeah, this is an real. Well, and this more than any of them is the one that I think I had in mind when I said that a number of these films are operating sort of like on the surface level is something more conventional, and then subterraneanly are are doing something else and this one actually like feels yeah. like it could be intimate lighting or something at the beginning like it's just <laughs> like a kind of like yeah, i mean yeah. a, a little more heightened because he's like got this obsession with this young girl but it's really just like about this school shot pretty plainly just watching him wander around the school as he's looking for this young woman and then you get to that scene at the gravesite, which i'm not a big fan of yeah. this film but like that scene is actually i think pretty striking it basically yeah. is an autopsy that's like happening in open air like <laughs> at a, a little yeah. cemetery and everything yeah. about the autopsy is conveyed by sound only basically oh. <laughs> like you just see them digging into the casket but you don't actually see anything in there and I will say that some of the sounds in this are just extremely well executed when they're cracking the guy's skull like you can feel oh it God. just deep in your bones yeah. like that is a I think a really well constructed example of how to make something feel more visceral by leaving it off screen and just using the soundtrack but where this ultimately ends up I'm less sure that any of it actually coheres into something that makes any kind of sense to me I yeah and it's kind of moralizing too it gets weirdly it weirdly takes his side huh. almost, I think. I'm not sure I mean I got that sense but it's just so it becomes so unexpectedly so surreal like it almost enters a state akin to persona in a way well that- I think it, oh. so, it's sort of dreamlike. Yeah, I saw this referred to as surrealism a lot, and I kind of take issue with that because I think sure. the, I, the yeah. film is not interested in a world that. that's upside down. Like, it's just interested in right. a person who's, like, Absolutely. deranged. It's interested in this one weird Right, and, and the film, yeah, like... I think the, the trick the film plays is to wear the garb of a more, like, objectivist movie or not objectivist, but objective movie, and then you slowly realize that you're actually more in this guy's headspace than you thought you were. But the world itself 
it's actually like closer to like a Simenon novel or something than it is to surrealism where like you get glimpses of the normal world through the like broken perception of this person. Yeah. I think my problem with the film is I just don't find the guy's predicament or his obsession very interesting. No. No. It's not an interest. It's not an obsession that you should. Anyone should support. Really, <laughs> yeah. it's not a healthy thing. Right, and it is just all through his perspective. He's in every scene, of course, and almost every shot feels either it's almost a point of view shot or a shot of him, and that's yeah. conveyed immediately with the haircutting, where it's <laughs> it's just focusing on these little bits of him. It didn't really seem like he needed a. Haircut. His hair was already no, very short. There, just. Yeah, his hair was fine. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to look good for the graduation. Yeah, he wanted to look extra fine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was just wasn't really prepared for how weird, especially the last couple scenes yeah. with the object of his obsession, where she it's not really a, she turns the tables, but it becomes more and more impossible to determine what is real, what is fake, or yeah. like what is in his it, head. Yeah, it's hard to tell if she's just talking about her life and he's picking it up in a certain way, or if she's tormenting him because the film is so taken on his end mm-hmm. of things. I think maybe that's what I meant when I said that it sort of takes his right, side, right. that it's so subjected mm-hmm. through him that we're receiving everything his way. Right. Weird, weird film. Yeah, the other thing I thought was really weird about it too, and I don't know if either of you felt this at all, but when it got to the sort of sequence after he murders her, when he's in the asylum for like a minute, I thought he was actually in a concentration camp. Like his, uh, like his hair is shaved so short and he's wearing like this kind of like, you know, just like dusty garbs or whatever that for a moment I was like, is this film going to an even stranger (laughs) place? But then I kind of was wondering like if there was something about that iconography that was being deployed purposefully here. And maybe I just am reading that totally incorrectly, but I was, like weirdly unsettled by the yeah. resemblance that I saw there. If that's the intention, I, I don't really want to unpack <laughs> it. It's so confused. Yeah, I don't know. I just was yeah struck by that. Yeah. Apparently Rosenbaum is a huge fan of especially some of his later films of Delvo's later films. Yeah, um, I'm I'm really interested in seeing uh, Rendezvous of Bray, which is an adaptation of Julian Grock, who is himself like kind of a borderline surrealist but not quite and i could see his style actually like being more in sync with that material the next film was canceled without replacement it's jean renoir's la chienne originally it was going to be shown in collaboration with the cinematech francaise and the rights were actually cleared several months before but in the interim it was actually sold to a new owner who for whatever reason refused permission for the festival to show it which is bizarre and We'll actually get to La Chienne in the 13th edition of the New York Film Festival, so we'll have a chance to discuss it in detail there. But Evan, if you want to give any thoughts on it. It's great. I'll let you discuss it later. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. It's really good. It's a good movie. That sounds about right. And so the only film that was shown at the festival that day was Jean-Luc Godard's Pierre Le Fou from 1965. I think that at least Dan and I, we agree that this is the best film that is shown at the festival to this moment. Best, yeah, non-retrospective type. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. This was a rewatch for me, but it was the first time for you. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Somehow I never made time for it, even when I felt I should check out 60s Godard, and it just... 
It was too long, I think. That's my complaint. <laughs> I didn't realize it, but besides like his tour up to cinema and miniseries like that, Godard's never made a film over two hours. Uh, they're they're all one hundred twenty minutes or less, which is interesting. But anyways, good uh, on him. Yeah, good on him. We support short films in general. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Either 70 minutes or 180. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way to go. Yeah, yeah. actually, this, this festival actually didn't have any long films. It's weird. There were none over two hours or so. Given the scattershot quality of that, <laughs> I, I'm totally happy with that. <laughs> but, okay, so Pierre Lefou stars Jean-Paul Belmondo as Fernand, a.k.a. Pierrot, and Anna Karina as Marion Renoir. <laughs> he loves giving those last names to Anna Karina. Oh, yeah. Veronica Dreyer, <laughs> Marianne Veronica Renoir. Dreyer. <laughs> uh, so, so Ferdinand, he's married, comes back into contact with Marianne, who he knew from five years before. So they go to this party and leaves disgusted and fatigued. And he runs into Karina's character and they decide to flee. And it follows their interactions as she's involved with gun smuggling. They decamp to the seaside. They spend lots of time there. And eventually it culminates with him killing her. And then he blows his head off with dynamite. Yeah. With a lot of dynamite. <laughs> with a lot of dynamite. Two full threads. Two full stacks, I guess. This is, I think, the at least from what I've seen, the apotheosis of Godard's sense both for philosophical illuminations and for just pure cinematic exuberance. I love both of those things about him and I think the way that he isolates some of that in some of his films and brings out other qualities in others is really fascinating but just to see them combined in such a fluid manner one that remains so intrinsically tied to narrative yet at the same time some sequences feel entirely non-narrative is really interesting and I think it just manages to convey so much about how film works, how a cinephilia works that it's just an intoxicating experience yeah i'd definitely say so it's one of my favorite guitars maybe not my favorite necessarily but i do think that it's just this sort of incredibly explosive fusion of different film styles and genres as well as his ideas about commercialism pop art these sort of philosophical and political questions that he's reckoned with a lot in his career and he sort of sublimates that to a certain degree just to create this sort of pure aesthetic pleasure and it creates this fascinating dialectic between what he is really intellectually interested in and just how you know, like goddamn talented is <laughs> at creating these incredible tableaus and these fusing color and cutting the film together. I mean, he's just a, yeah, it's just like this incredible highlight of Jean-Luc Godard as a just fantastic filmmaker. It's Absolutely. interesting to me that this is so beloved by you guys, because this is not one of my favorite uh, no. Godard films, actually. I didn't get a chance to revisit it, and it's been a while since sure. I've seen it, but I actually think the exact reason that you, Dan, just articulate as to why you really like it is kind of why though it's certainly a lot of fun and i have nothing against the film it has always seemed lesser godard to me because i think it's the last gasp of his cine kid infant terrible vibe that he was frequently grooving on during the early 60s it it is as you said ryan the apotheosis of that that's just the part of Godard that on some level I feel like I've grown out of kind of yeah. not to be like right. you guys are young and I'm old <laughs> yeah. but uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know like it just I saw this one later than all the other 60s ones mm-hmm. when I had seen a number of other later Godard films and it was right. it, it does 
seem to me like it is very fun and it is groping at some of those other ideas that he would develop more fully in just a couple films after this and yet he's still tied to this very cinephilic approach which at least for me has maybe run out of steam just a little bit at this point but I'm glad you guys are as taken with it as you are (laughs) I wish I shared your enthusiasm yeah I mean having not seen any guitars later I mean later than the 60s at least for me it's a big blind spot for myself but but, um, Same. yeah, I think maybe that influences how much I like it. And, you know, maybe coming back around, I'll probably dip a little bit. But I do think it definitely feels like that last grasp mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. I think maybe that even influences how I've responded to it, too. And how it can get to be digressive, even in this sort of weird, cringy way. Like when they act out the Vietnam War and <laughs> in yellow face. <laughs> no reason, really. <laughs> but they do it for, like, the pleasure of the sort of American tour who are also on the Riviera with them. And Bamanda just going, yeah, yeah, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's so self-referential even. Like, I, of course, mm-hmm. Godard's no stranger to self-referential and even in Masculine Feminine, he mentions Pierre Le Fou in the final moments. But there's, a, I think, a Le Petit Soldat poster in it. There's, I guess, uh-huh. implicit reference to Breathless with showing Gene Seberg in the movie theater. I think that there right. are certain references to, say, Woman is a Woman with how the musical, there are a few songs, how the musical sequences play out. If that wasn't enough in terms of references, the film has everything. It has Proust, it has <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, it has Pepe de Mocha, it has Johnny Guitar, it has Samuel Fuller yeah. as himself saying, <laughs> cinema is a battlegrounds. <laughs> yeah, that speech which i had like read in Fuller's autobiography and seeing quoted and out of context and whatever nonsense twitter accounts use it um that was actually a lot like a lot calmer and a lot cooler than <laughs> oh I was yeah expect- i was expecting fuller to just be yelling that and like no. holding his cigar but he's really just standing there and he's very detached from it too he's like as detached from this whole scene as belmondo is and it has to actually be put through an interpreter too right. it's not like a straight thing that he's just saying that every audience can get and he's basically growling it it's kind of yeah, yeah, he's just kind of yeah. standing there smoking, wearing his sunglasses inside at night. <laughs> in, in one word, green, emotion. Yeah, that weird green tinting or whatever in that sequence, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, There's like six different tints used in that one scene where he's right. where Belmondo's just walking through and people are... I think the thing that makes something like saying the advertisement copy as conversation, what makes that work, that's the sort of thing that Godard has a control on is that it's said as if it's in the natural conversation cadence. It's not yeah. just spouted off. It's it's, it's not like on. in like Fight Club where <laughs> like you know they like rattling <laughs> off the IKEA catalog with like this complete contempt for the sort of sneering hatred of commercialism. Godard actually like engaging with it at the level that it, the advertisers would like mm-hmm. it to be. And speaking of engagement, I think that. One of the things that makes the film for me is, and that I completely didn't pick up on first watch, is that Karina's character is given pretty much equal weight, I think, in the film. Yeah, I would say so. And especially the really extraordinary voiceover. Mm -hmm. Throughout the film, there's frequent voiceover, and Belmondo and Karina switch off every few lines, sometimes every few words, and there's an immense ping-pong back-and-forth effect that happens all the way throughout. Things like that just are what make the film. There's so many things. It's just so much stuff, so, so much narrative, even, that happens in the film that just propels it through this not dreamscape but just candy colored 
Fantasia. Yeah, I really did adore it. I'm just a grump, what can I say? <laughs> well, uh, I think that one of the most beautiful things I've seen is the way that Godard and Qatar shoot the car driving. And yes. it's, it's in uh, the studio, or it looks like it's probably in the studio, just completely dark except for lights just flashing uh, yeah, past the them. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. Yeah, when I said the ability to create just this pure aesthetic pleasure is uh, oh, I'm thinking yeah. of sequences like that, probably more so than the ones, you know, at the seaside. Yeah, just beautiful, beautiful film. So from the toppermost of the toppermost <laughs> to the absolute dregs, the garbage of the Neuro Film Festival, <laughs> we have Vittorio De Seto's Almost a Man from 1966, uh, another film from those Italians that we love and hate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is probably the worst film that's played in the whole festival. I think I uh, past this too? Or, or you mean up to this point? Oh, oh, I mean up to this point. Oh, I yeah. mean, we do get, does an American movie play in the festival? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't, it doesn't. But you got yeah, Birdman to look forward to that, so... I will say that I think that this is the worst, easily the worst feature to play in the festival, but I think that the Ugo Gregoretti short from Rogopog still takes the cake for me. Okay, yeah, I didn't watch all of Rogopog. Oh, almost a man. Oh, let's just say. So I don't know where to begin with how moronic this movie is. So I think I'm going to start with what was to me the most immediate and obvious offense, which is the film takes one of cinema's great blondes, Jacques Perrin, and dyes his hair black because we have to know that he's serious and sad, and then gives him what is the lamest painted on five o'clock shadow beard that he yes. wears through the whole movie which when it's in close-up you can very clearly tell that it's just fake beard that's been painted on and nothing <laughs> represents this film more to me than his like shitty fake beard which is meant to communicate like what a sad boy guy this this guy yeah. is and i think dan you had said we were talking about this previously that this is an incel movie <laughs> <laughs> this is this is probably the first example of incel cinema, incel representation. And like that's all this movie is. It's just like this mopey guy walking around being sad because like he apparently like he can't sleep with anyone because he at one time witnessed his brother sleeping. I mean, it's so obscure too what's actually happening in the film because it's all happening in voiceover and yet it leaves things like just it withholds things for no purpose whatsoever other than to just be quote-unquote artful or like arty and none of it none of it works yeah i mean the film ends with a carl jung quote i mean i think i i don't think i read that quote at the end i didn't realize it no it was it was after the credits i think i'm sure i think i shut Uh, it off the second (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i mean yeah it's so moronic i mean god uh (laughs) <laughs> to sort of give whatever semblance of plot this film has it's about a man wandering through his sort of memory scape he first thinks about his first wife or something like that and then he decides to go to his old home and then he confronts all the ghosts of his past his, his mother who beat him his first love his brother who's a war hero i guess i'm amazed Germany, that you were able to extract II. that much plot information <laughs> from what happens in this film yeah i mean yeah it's just a totally incoherent film and that extends even to the the directorial style like it has so many distracting jarring effects and sometimes it'll cut from an aerial shot that's sort of spinning to an intense (laughs) close-up low angle on his face that's just the combination is just like the 
exact opposite of say like a shadows of forgotten ancestors like it's going for yeah, i guess that yeah. sort of exhilarating effect and apparently i think that i read reviews at the time that people loved almost a man and i mean like it's so god-awful yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's bland that's the thing it, feel, it ultimately yeah it's becomes bland. really it's just a really boring interpolation of like a sort of renee style yeah, exactly. of working through memories and i actually wrote down all the cliches that it could remind me of. I, I said Renee's editing, Fellini's sort of navel gazing. It's very navel gazing. Uh, yeah, and then the Visconti Bellocchio <laughs> troubled masculinity that we sort of saw in Fist in the Pocket. It, it just, yeah, it's completely absurd. The problem is that there's just, or one of the many problems is that there's there's just no emotional investment whatsoever. None. Well, it, Whatever uh, this, this guy's trying to do. Well, it, yeah. it starts like assuming that you have like deep emotional commitment to whatever it's whatever's <laughs> happening, and it makes zero tonal adjustment throughout. Like that's the other thing too is it is just like oppressively the same fucking navel gazing <laughs> tone the entire time, and it does not. It's unrelenting. Right. No interaction makes sense in this film. <laughs> yeah. It's just... And By I, the time he got to, like, seeing his brother have sex with his girlfriend or whatever it was supposed I, to be, I was just like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. And, uh, like that. Well, that's, that's what's so weird. Like it, it builds. It, you think it's going to build to this place where it's like going to reveal something like really upsetting about his past. Like he was like yeah. traumatized in some way. And it, unless I missed something, which is entirely possible, because by that point I was just like so <laughs> numbed by this thing. But yeah, I mean, it's just like yeah. I, I folded my laundry <laughs> for half of this movie. I, I needed to do something. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, everything I, about this movie is. Everything's wrong about it is embodied in the fake beard. It's, that is just the totem <laughs> yeah, of yeah. this movie's yeah. deep inauthenticity. And Jack Perrin won the Volpe Cup for Best Actor at Venice. Insane. It's like insane. Yeah, it's just it's art house acting, capital A, capital A. He just he doesn't just even like do anything. Movies. He just like looks. Yeah, exactly. Like sad. And exactly. I he's an actor who I really like and who's really amazing. And Paul Vecchielli is the Strangler. Which is like an all-time great performance. Uh, amazing that anyone would think this is like the height of his achievement. If we're looking for actually interesting and kind of radical evocations of memory, let's go to the final film in this edition of the New York Film Festival. Alan Renee's The War is Over from 1966. This is, it really took me by surprise. Same, yeah. Even though I do yeah. adore Renee, especially after seeing Muriel, this is completely different from his first three films and in both to some extent in terms of style but much more in terms of genre and subject matter but it gets at so many of the same concerns that renee's films have got at in the past and in doing so it creates a really really remarkable work that shifts and changes it stars eve montand cast perhaps incongruously as a spaniard he is a leftist opposing franco's regime and he basically helps out with the underground movements, organizing strikes and general disruption of the government in place at the time. And he's based in Paris, but moves frequently back and forth between Paris and Madrid and various other places in Spain. And it takes place over what seems to be two, three days mm -hmm. or so. And it begins with him rushing back to Paris after discovering that raids have begun and many of his compatriots in Madrid have been arrested. And it deals with a number of strands. It deals with his trying to convince his superiors that there is a 
genuine threat from these raids that are more significant than usual, especially in the wake of this general strike that's about to occur in Spain. He interacts with his lover, Marianne, played by Ingrid Thulin, and their wariness over his tenuous position as a professional revolutionary, that's the phrase that they use. And he has sort of a side affair with Nadine, played by Genevieve Bujold, and he later learns that she is herself is involved with a reactionary Spanish group that aims to use more violent methods than the leftists. And it manages to weave all of these shockingly well, especially considering that up to this point, I don't think Renee's features had been that deeply involved with politics up to that point. But he manages to weave all these so well under the same umbrella. And in doing so, he infuses the film with his trademark explorations of memory by including all these odd cut-ins of what appear to be sometimes flashbacks, flash-forwards, possibilities, and in doing so creates this mind space that the viewer is in of Montan's character. And Montan's character should be noted, he has many different identities throughout the film. His real name is Diego, but in the organization he is known as Carlos, and he has many different passports in order to sneak across the border without being noticed. And it really surprised me. I was really taken with it. Yeah, but I mean, I think Renee's earlier works do deal with politics, but in a maybe more oblique way, like, you know, with Muriel, it's sort of presented as a centerpiece, but sort of on the fringes. I really was also surprised by this, sort of expected to be maybe more minor Renee, which I do maybe think it is, just because it sort of lacks that emotional pull of, something like Hiroshima more and more and Muriel and it's maybe closer to last year at Marion Bad just in Renee working through this sort of formalist lens to create something that is maybe a little harder to parse through individually but yeah it does create this sort of dreamlike memory state and this, this sort of finality to it that like his style of revolution Montan's is sort of coming to an end they've maybe lost this battle and that something more explosive is going to be coming down the line. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like the double meaning of the title, clearly, right? I mean, it's a quote from Franco, but the war being over is also the end of this kind of ideal of revolution. And I think what I most responded to in the film, which I also quite liked, was the sort of profound feeling of exhaustion, physical exhaustion, but also moral and ideological exhaustion. Montante has huge bags under his eyes (laughs) just carry the weight of the world. (laughs) <laughs> seems like from the very beginning just so worn out and tired and yeah. the other thing i think that because i actually i think i did find the movie a more emotional experience than it sounds like you did dan and i think the reason is yeah, that it gets to this it's like a really weirdly particular movie about the feeling of not having your own home it's all about him at night going between apartments where he like crashes for a little while and the sort of like sleep deprived state of being someone who's living this nomadic existence bouncing between your friend's apartment i mean obviously i'm not a uh, political (laughs) revolutionary but uh i uh i can understand that experience and i i think that the way that renee understands that literal exhaustion bleeds into a kind of like decayed political atmosphere at this like late 60s moment is something that i really liked about the film and i Absolutely, think you could almost yeah. even pair it as a double feature in this festival with troublemakers both films about yeah. like the frustrations of political yeah. action and the inability 
to achieve your ends and like what does it mean for your organization for your tactics when you recognize that you've really failed repeatedly to achieve the outcomes that you've fought for yeah and i definitely as far as the tension that you've brought up between the sort of impending may 68 and what is sort of being explored now this film Mm -hmm. really goes there i think this most explicitly bujold's group is really kind of what's to come and what may 68 really kind of formed into yeah so much of the film is about destabilizing not only montan's character but the viewer by proxy there's a really odd voiceover that occurs throughout the film that's done almost entirely in second person talking about you are crossing the border again something like that i wasn't able to figure out who gave it i'm not sure if it was montan who actually said it does that voiceover then does that accompany the cutaways to like those sort of number sevens that you get in the film sometimes um, like, but not always yeah yeah sometimes I, it is over the direct yeah action. those cutaways that's really where renee's trademark concerns come to the fore montan has to account for all of these things and occasionally his past or things that he thinks might happen intrude into the present and sometimes these cutaways can actually last for quite a while where it goes through for instance, when he's told that he shouldn't go back to Spain, there's a 30-second or so cutaway to various scenes of him imagining what his life would be like, just waiting for the call again, in this yeah. sort of limbo. A lot of the images are quite striking, too. It is maybe less audacious in terms of composition as Muriel, maybe partly because mm-hmm. it is in black and white, but I think that there are some moments, like there are a few shots where it pans to the bedroom wall, where it's just an abstract pattern of shadows and light just cascading along the wall that that's really beautiful Mm -hmm. and some of the shots are deliberately blown out so it creates this sort of hazy feeling and it's a really odd film but one that is quite lovely yeah it's a little hard to sort of get your bearings on it at least more so than muriel because once you sort of get to that central scene in Muriel where you're seeing the Super 8 footage of Algeria, then you really can kind of think about it and have something to structure the rest of the film around and it's been a while since I've seen his first two films, but I feel like there's something there too. There's like maybe a sort of structuring absence there. Maybe less so in Miriam. Miriam. But yeah, there's definitely in Hiroshima and more. there's the sequence back in France or in Germany. Yeah, Right, yeah, yeah. There's something that you can really build the film around and here it's, yeah, a lot more freeform i would say maybe closer to marion bad the sort of lack of a true identity that he has that he's able to just sort of switch passports and call up a guy and get a new passport and a new identity so that he can just simply for like this sort of it's a provisional thing that it's just so that he can get through this one formality to cross the border and meet up with whoever he needs to. It's sort of a way that you can kind of get your feet on the ground here, but it's hard because Montan doesn't even have any sort of grounding himself. So right. you, you can Well, it's, it's a film about exile. Like the yeah. absence yes. is, is Spain. It's being an exile from your country, which is why, I mean, I think the ending of the, I think I would really have loved this film if I felt the ending really came to a more, really crystallized in a more powerful way. I I think the ending is kind of weak, but it's relevant that the final act that Montan takes is to go back to Spain, knowing that he's like going into the lion's den and is likely to be killed because he's basically just at a point where he can't be an exile any longer right and like that's that's where i think the heart of the film 
lies. Yeah, definitely. And I think he even says at one point that the truth is of no consequence or something like that. It's yeah. all about his experience of this. And Marianne mentions at some points that he was unhappy when he was told to stay in relative safety because he, to some extent, longs for Spain. He longs for this national identity that has been stripped from him. And he says that he doesn't want to end up just living in Paris, just looking at it from afar. He frequently accuses his superiors of just dictating the activities of the proletariat from an armchair in thousands of miles away. Right, they're demanding that the workers strike, but they're not necessarily attuned to why the workers might even strike in the first place. Right. The screenplay was written by Hori Semprun, who was actually a, involved in the Exiled Communist Party of Spain. And he wrote this, and he also wrote Z by Costa Gavras, mm. that film. Mm. And one of the oddest Oscar nominations that I can think of, this film was actually nominated for Best Original Screenplay <laughs> in oh, 1967. What? Yeah, fellow nominees included uh, Divorce, American Style... <laughs> Yeah, international year. Two for the road. Of course, the winner was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> yeah. Bonnie and Clyde was in there, too. Yeah, yeah. So Interesting. It's a lot more vocal than other Renee films. Mm-hmm. It's, it, yeah. A lot of it is in the quick exchange of information. Yeah, it's a really, really striking film. And I, well, I won't say that this film is as, in terms of cinephile culture, as earth-shakingly incredible as Renee's first three features, I would like to suggest that it should be put in the same breath as them because I think it's it uses the genre framework to expand on his ideas in really remarkable ways. Yeah, I mean, I think my sense of like the conventional read on the film is that it's somewhat like equivalent to Varda's La Creature. I mean, maybe more like successful, but someone doing something, making like a left turn into a different style. Yeah. And I, I think I agree with you, Ryan, that I, I don't really think it's all that different from the other films. It's both right. like more sprawling in a way, but more compact in its interests and conventional, I suppose, in the way that it approaches character more than anything else, more than the other films. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually kind of want to revisit this film already because uh, I've yeah, been thinking so, about it a lot. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, I guess, maybe akin to the Dardenne's Gone Girl. In mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the way that genres use. Yeah, I yeah, can see that. A great way to end this festival. Better than ending on uh, Almost a Man, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank God that was a closing night. sort of agree with some of the macro themes that we 
laid out in the beginning, I think we could see that. There is a very Eurocentric bend to this selection, as we noted before, but there are interesting variations. The highs are very high, and the lows, uh, you know, <laughs> you really get, really, it's a how low can you go <laughs> proposition here. Yeah, is there anything else you guys wanted to mention about the lineup or the sort of general mood of the films? Any any connections that you forgot to mention? Oh, just the, again that both ends are just so weird. Yeah. Both the highs and the lows. There is, and we have at least two films that, at least to me, even though I can identify that I find them great, uh, Azar Balsar and Asking Feminon, I can't identify why. Even more than usual, these films are tied directly to the act of actually experiencing them. And in that respect, I think that makes for a stronger festival in general. Yeah. Almost a man needs to be seen to be beloved. <laughs> 100%. But, 100%. But maybe it doesn't need to be seen. If, just, uh, just listen If this us. podcast accomplishes anything, it'll be getting one brave soul to uh, watch Almost a Man yeah. and then never listen yeah, to this hopefully. podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I sort of laid out at the beginning what I saw as the macro trends. I guess I'll just say that the one thing that I was really surprised by was the shameless old lady. And uh, I'm kind of curious how you guys will take to the other uh, Alio films that show up. He's got a few that look pretty interesting. And I believe I read that he actually adapted Transit, the same novel uh, oh. that uh, Christian Petzl just adapted. I can't seem to find that one anywhere, but he's definitely a topic for further research for me. So I'm glad to at least have found a new name of someone I can explore coming out of doing this. Bring back the children's show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah put in, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what's coming up this year that they could do. But uh, <laughs> yeah, find a way. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, Lars Von Trier. Say... We'll do that as the kids program. <laughs> the house that Jack built. <laughs> the house that, it's, it's a house. It sounds like a child's uh, story. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Bob the Builder, Jack the Builder. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> I would say as far as discoveries that really took me by surprise, it'd probably be Hunger and Troublemakers, which are just two things that were completely off my radar. Really interested me and were things I wasn't expecting very much from and, and really hit some of my interests lately. There was actually a lot of first-time filmmakers in the festival who recur again. In the festival, by my count, there's somewhere close to 10 filmmakers who had their debut in this one who've come back for at least one more so that's a in itself kind of an interesting note and lots of especially eastern european not just czech but also mm -hmm. hungary yugoslavia the ussr of course makes an appearance i would comfortably place this between the third and the second festivals for me just because there is a certain unity in these films that more in terms of actually viewing them than actual content but it's a kind of an interesting festival Maybe the fact that I watched yeah. them all so close together, maybe that had something to do with it, but there's definitely a vibe in the festival. Yeah, and we've got another odd set of films coming up, just kind of taking a look at it now. It's going to be an interesting, interesting set. Absolutely. Thank you, Evan, so much yeah. for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Very long recording. As it's, a, it's a marathon, yeah. not a sprint. Uh, on, on, yeah, uh, definitely. Witness, yeah. We're, so. we're going <laughs> to get something out of this <laughs> of the day. yeah absolutely and yeah we'll have to have you back evan for another edition if you're Definitely. birdman when birdman's on let me know and i'll see you in a while yeah no anytime anytime and definitely check out stinks and funerals uh, oh yeah i guess i should plug my show yeah, yeah that's my show yeah slightly less lengthy episodes <laughs>
but significantly more less films. Broad discussion of individual films. And you can hear my voice when it's not edited fifty times in the course of <laughs> Yeah, I'm a very lax editor, so you get what you get. <laughs> uh, do you want to plug your writing? Oh, uh, who wants to follow that shit? I don't sure. You can find me on Twitter. <laughs> Just I don't know. Evan Morgan, that's my name. And we're both going to be covering a different, uh, lesser festival. (laughs) Thank God you didn't decide to do a podcast that was like, we're going to cover every SIF every year because. (laughs) Wow, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. The festival, you know, we should be griping about it next episode. So, oh, wonderful! I can't wait. (laughs) Oh, I, I forgot. We didn't even mention that we're both going to los angeles oh yeah yeah Yeah, we'll be in la come the fall usc for me ucla for you Mm -hmm. and we will hopefully actually be recording in person and we'll have um, certainly certainly possible it's just a matter of getting to each other we're gonna have to figure out how to navigate la (laughs) recording equipment but yeah for now this has remained resolutely a Pacific Northwest. That's podcast. true. Thank you, Evan. Yeah, that's true. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you yeah, for thanks. joining us and thank you to the listeners for sticking with us. Uh, yeah. Sorry for thanks the delay for... on the last episode, but thank you for listening. It means a lot. And we'll see you next time. Uh...